In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Aliens are all in your mind. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Of course, unaccredited amateur hypnotherapists know more about you than you. Okay, go for it. Ladies and gentlemen, what you are hearing right now, what you are witnessing, is the first and the long-awaited, the much-anticipated, the ballyhooed about, I'm running out of thesaurus words, drawing. Keep talking. <laughs> drawing of the uh, 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 Ted Phillips raffle. For those three, Mark Brabant, Brabant, Brab, Brab, Babar, however his name is pronounced, artistic <laughs> renderings. That's right. This is the raffle. Jeff is mixing up the names now. Inside of not quite a, well, I guess a hat. It's actually Darth Vader's uh, life-size helmet that he is. Yes. Kind of apropos in a way. Cast from the original New Hope helmet, by the way. Yes. Nerds! Um, so. This has been a nerdtastic night. I saw the new Star Trek, and now I'm witnessing this. So it's like the yin to the yang of sci-fi. Right. Um, by the way, the uh, new Star Trek, fantastic. Okay, are we ready? I believe we are. Are we ready for a random drawing? I have the, uh, I have the, uh, as Jeremy can attest, I have the the thing clearly aimed away from my face. Yes. Vader's shroud is against my eyes. Indeed. So I cannot see for which I will be taking. So here we go. Here we are. Drum roll. And the winner is <laughs> you, the audience. Yay! <laughs> Nothing like that. Air. This is so fucking random. It's ridiculous. <laughs> And the winner is, um, go ahead, go ahead, hold it up. What did it say? You Wait can't put it back. I didn't do it, put it back. <laughs> I, didn't put, I had three stuck to my fingers, oh, idiot. Okay. Okay, now, I'm <laughs> He looks pleased. He looks thrilled. Who's the big winner? The winner, <laughs> yes, Mister John Radcliffe. Oh my God, John Radcliffe! Congratulations, John Radcliffe! Golf clap! You have won yourself three pictures that you probably 
uh, don't want. But you will want them once you see them because they're fantastic. Yes. Um, and thank you, everyone. How much money did we raise? Uh, I haven't counted it up yet because I literally just made the list of little slips before we got on the air. All right. Well, we'll we, <laughs> so we'll, I'm we'll, not sure. We'll do a Wayne's World uh, cut I mean, too. Uh, we did. We did uh, very well, actually. We had. Um, uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 17, uh, 18, 19 people that got in. So around 20 people got in, but many of them bought more than, more than one slip. So, uh, uh, there was quite a lot of slips to fig- to fill out. Uh, uh, in particular, I want to thank, uh, Susan Brown, Michelle Jones, um, I mean, these are the people that really went above and beyond for, for this. Whether they won or not, they donated a, a lot of money to, uh, to help with this project for, for Ted and, uh, and for the uh, Marley Woods project. So many thanks to everybody who entered. And, uh, and congrats to, uh, to John. So I think that's great. Woo-hoo. So how much did we raise, Jeff? That would be a grand total of... $178. Or... One of the two. I mean, it's not bad. Well... It's not bad. It's 178 Not bad for a first try. Um, um, yeah, so certainly not going to get us internet access, but no, um, that's where option number two comes into play. We will be doing another one of these, probably in the next couple of weeks. And and I guess I might as well say that I have uh, decided on what the art piece is going to be for this because I finally got it sketched out. And and let me just explain this real quick because this is, this is really important because this probably would have been much more successful for Ted in the center if we'd have been able to uh, promote this everywhere that we could. And we did. We did promote it over a lot of UFO sites, a lot of different uh, discussion boards. I know Jeremy put some up at different places, and I mentioned it where I could around the net. Unfortunately, being engaged towards the UFO stuff, and even UFO artwork, uh, it almost kind of limits things a a bit as to uh, people who would be interested in donating to something like this. However, I have an idea. (laughs) I'm going to build what is fast becoming the newest way cool collectible type of thing, which is a ray gun. Uh, everybody likes ray guns. I've discovered this. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm going to do a ray gun. Uh, it's going to be in the kind of the old sci-fi uh, type of look. It's going to have a lot of bits and bobs on it. And uh, uh, the reason that I decided to do that is because there's a site out there, if anybody hasn't ever heard of it, it's called boingboing.net. That is one of the larger blog hubs out there where everybody kind of gets their neato blog stuff to post. I have done auctions before, not for charity, but for the charity of Jeff Ritzman's bank account and mortgage payment of different, uh, I used to do guitars and stuff like that, and I had one of my guitars go up on their site, and they featured it on one of their blog posts, and later on, that auction for that guitar garnered about 10,000 views and about, uh, I don't know, between... Three and five hundred watchers on that auction, and that auction ended uh, in the in the thousands. So I'm thinking that if we can do a really cool ray gun, this is something that the hosts there are really into. 
and uh, and it's for a good cause, and maybe that they'll post it, and we'll get even more attention on that auction to therefore raise the price, right? Raise the, the bids or the raffles, however we decide to do it. Very good. I think that'll you know just gain us wider exposure. That's what we need is more exposure. Yes. If there's anything I need, it's to be exposed. Yes. So I think that's that's how we're gonna we're gonna do it. And I think a ray gun is, and it'll come on a nice plaque and a nice stand and all that. So it'll be kind of something cool you can put on your wall. And it won't be a, an easy thing. And uh, but I like doing them; they're fun. So now, will it actually shoot rays? Uh, only sunlight. Only sunlight. <laughs> is there a way to rig it up so that, it, like, with mirrors, where it actually does shoot sunlight? If you, I don't know. It? We could. We could try. I guess. Leave it to me to stumble upon a new form of weaponry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you're, I mean, if you're, uh, you know, if you're kind of into that sort of thing, uh, go over to uh, weta.com, W-E-T-A.com, and look at some of the ray guns that those guys have put together. That's kind of the genre I'm talking about going. Just go take a look at those, except uh, more detailed and, and probably... Uh, Less hobbity. Uh... Well, they're not really hobbity. They're are they the same? They're of, in the Hobbit movies. They're of the same same genres I'm talking about doing, but something completely custom and built from hand. And but is that the same Wida? Yeah, same Wida. They they put out a line of uh, of, of ray guns, old timey looking ray guns. Hmm. Okay. And I just think it'll be a really neat thing, and I think we'll get a lot of uh, publicity off that. I know it sounds a little radical, but this is the new art. It's just so crazy; it might work. It, it might. <laughs> So we'll see what happens. And we're just going to keep doing them for Ted, you know, and whatever uh, whatever happens to come along. I mean, we're just going to keep doing this until he gets what he needs to, to make that place uh, visible to all of us on the web and, and whatever equipment that he needs to get the job done out there. So if the job is ever done at all, you know, this could go on for years and could run into a lot of money. So it's all kind of falls upon us to help out and make this happen if we want to see this stuff. So, there you have it. Well, Peritopia, we raised $178, which is not bad for a first attempt, but it ain't going to get us the internet access we want. So, when Jeff does the ray gun and puts that up, you got to get out there and bid on this thing, um, or it, it's sort of shit or get off the pot. You either, you either want some answers here, which is what Ted can kind of provide for us, um, or... Or you you don't, or you just want to sort of like sit back and this is all a nice entertainment for you, which is fine. But then don't um you know don't complain <laughs> that there's that there's you know nothing real that we can do when uh, you know you're not even willing to donate say three dollars to a lousy raffle, you fuckers. Okay. <laughs> I guess I can't. I guess I can't. Berate, berate, berate the audience. That's a way to get them to donate. Hey, that's right. Uh, that's right. Ah, moving on. Kevin Randall is our guest That's right. today. As soon as I press this magic button, how do you think this interview will go? <laughs> I'll make a prediction. Go ahead. I'm going to disagree with him about the ETH. No, come on. You love the ETH. I think so. You're a huge fan of, of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Right. I feel it coming on. <laughs> One of my turns is coming on. Don't you at least have a nostalgic love for the ETH. Kind of like a VH1 classic, you know? Let me think. No. No, not a nothing. Okay. Very good. 
Um, but at least we're not talking about Roswell, and so that'll be fun. It'll be a nice right. change of pace. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> for for us, it will be. For the audience, who cares? They didn't even buy into the raffle. Oh, God, would you leave them alone? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's not your fault, people. There's a recession, and $3 would have knocked you out when you... Oh, there it is. You know, it was they... Cheetos. It was a bag of Cheetos and uh, some cheesy poofs or... Or a chance for answers <laughs> to the universe. <laughs> right. Right. You you had your choice. You made your bed, and uh, and now we all get to lie in it. So, thank you. <laughs> You're evil. Oh. <laughs> Leave the poor people alone. These poor bastards. Uh, it's okay. We'll we'll we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep doing this. I mean, every little bit helps. I mean, I I, I mean to be honest with you, if it had been fifty dollars, that's fifty dollars that Ted and the and the center didn't have. Right. So we're doing something, and that's the point. So you know, my my thanks to everybody who got involved in the uh, in the raffle. Yes. So thank yes. You yes. All. Thank you all who did buy tickets, and we really do appreciate it. I'm sure Ted does as well. Yeah, I shouldn't. So. I shouldn't concentrate on the people who didn't buy tickets, which was thousands of dollars worth of you. <laughs> I'd like to thank the hundred seventy-eight dollars worth of people who did. Thank you, thank you very much. And if you are a listener on uh, UPRN one hundred five point three Nolans, do me a favor and um, contact us in some way. I just want to know who's out there and listening via the radio. Um, you can email us at. Um, Podcast at gmail.com, or if you'd like to come to the message board, I'll have a sticky thread at the top of um, Stories by the Bonfire section, which is the very tippity-top of our uh, forum. Um, and the section will say something like, you know, UPRN listeners, you know, add your voice here, or some something lame like that. Um, you don't even have to sign up for the forum. Just click in as a guest and say, me, count me. Just because I want to know. I just want to know... Um, and Jeremy and I want uh, party hats and Mardi Gras. Right, anybody. right. We want to know whose house we're going to be staying at when we come to the <laughs> inevitable Mardi Gras. Show me your boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, show me your boobs. They haven't heard that in New Orleans ever. Show right. me your boobs. Um, speaking of show me your boobs, you want to run down that list of uh, people we thanked for the $178? The whole list? Well, it was Leslie Gunter. It was Michelle something. It was... Uh, Leslie Gunter, uh, Michelle Jones. Oh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, Susan Brown. I mean, these are these are people that went, you know, really over the top for us to make it. They they as as I as I as you would say, they did what was right. <laughs> they did what was right. Now, I think everybody uh, deserves our thanks for that. So. You know, hey, it's the first one out of the gate. We're we're a startup podcast. We're only seventeen episodes in, eighteen now, I guess. So, I mean, hell, that ain't bad. Yeah, yeah it was three bucks a thing. So, and 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 let me let me tell you something else that uh, that I think will make the next one a bigger success is that we really didn't. Uh, I don't think a lot of our international listeners, of which there are thousands, I don't think that they were so sure that they were able to be included in this. I think the next thing we do, raffle-wise, I think we're going to do it on eBay because that opens it up to the whole world. Everybody can access eBay all over the world, and I think that'll just make it a better um, a better venture in that direction. Maybe that's what we should have done with this, but because uh, that opens it up even to non-listeners. You know, if they like what they see, end of story, they bid. And um, 
and I think that's going to be the way we're going to go next time is just an eBay auction uh, to benefit Ted in the center. So uh, I'll let everybody know when that goes up. Uh, probably the next two or three weeks, it'll be going up, and we'll make it a seven-day auction and let it roll. It'll end on a Sunday night. So uh, there you have it. That's what we'll do. That opens it up to the world. So maybe this one and some of our international listeners didn't know if they were able to participate. And frankly, here's another thing. A lot of people don't have a PayPal account. Hmm. So that could have been the other problem. So let's just see what happens. We'll we'll take it from here and plan on our auction. Next up, Kevin Randall. Does he need any sort of introduction, or do we all know who Kevin Randall is? I think we all know who Kevin Randall is. Yeah, I feel like he's one of those guys who we could run down the list of credentials. And um, if you haven't seen him on TV, if you haven't read his books, if you haven't seen him speak. Where you been? Uh, yeah, where, where the hell you been? <laughs> Boy, I just am hostile to the audience. Let's get let's get on the curve. Yeah, let's get on the ball here, people. Chop chop. Please welcome to Paratopia the one, the only, Mister Kevin Randall. Kevin, of course, you're most famous for your work with um, with Roswell, but but I've trapped you into an episode re- revolving around alien abductions. So thank you for that. Um, you've written a book called The Abduction Enigma. The Truth Behind the Mass Alien Abductions of the Late 20th Century with uh, Russ Estes and William P. Cohn. And before we get into it, I just want to know, just in reading the product description on Amazon, it says between them, they have expertise in military aviation, a doctorate in psychology, and a first-hand alien contact. Who has first-hand alien contact, and what was what was that? Well, there was Bill Cohn, and, and had a, um, an experience when he was a youngster that he believes to have been an alien contact. So, but but not an abduction. Just a, a, a I don't want to really say sighting, and I don't want to you know, say conversation. But uh, uh, they were in the same location at the same time and kind of witnessed one another. I guess it wasn't it wasn't a uh, involved interaction. I guess is where I'm going with that. Well, that's interesting. So, okay, so what what brings you to the table here? Now, I, I had read, um, you know, an extensive blog from you. That um, was quite a while ago, maybe a year ago or so, um, sort of defending your book because a lot of people were sort of on your case about, um, you know, how can you say that, that there are any other solutions to abductions than, for instance, aliens? But now, now you've written for UFO Magazine, and it seems like what you're actually saying is, one... The likes of Bud Hawkins, David Jacobs, that sort of hypnotically retrieved narrative that has unfolded over the years is questionable. Um, but not that all abductions are crap, <laughs> but just that there's certainly an answer for a lot of them. So are, are you saying that, or, or are you backing off of your initial position, or was your initial position completely mistranslated by people reading I think most what they wanted to read? I think most people misunderstood what we were attempting to say in the abduction enigma. We postulated that, that A, there was a terrestrial solution for some abductions, uh, clearly a terrestrial explanation for some abductions, that the research techniques being used by many people were probably not the best techniques to be used. Repeated hypnotic regression led to false positive um, abduction scenarios, and that we ought to rethink the way the research was being conducted, and we ought to change the standards, which 
which we use to accept this sort of thing. We were, we were postulating or suggesting that we become more scientific in our orientation as we looked at alien abduction to see if there isn't a complete and total uh, terrestrial explanation, meaning multiple parts, that the single explanation will not fit every category, but there, are, there might be multiple uh, uh, explanations that, that we ought to look at what people were saying about abduction and, and realizing that these alien creatures who have, who have the technology to cross, cross vast, the vastness of space, which is scientifically impossible for us to do at this point, but they've, they've figured that out, and yet they come to Earth and their genetic experimentation on humans is, 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 is inadequate by 1950 standards. It just isn't very advanced, and they keep uh, doing the same experiment over and over again. They never seem to learn from it and advance beyond that. And we ought to look at all of these things and say, gee whiz, we can explain some abductions as sleep paralysis, by no means all of them, but some of them can be explained by sleep paralysis. There is a core of very interesting abductions that may not have a terrestrial explanation, and we ought to look at those sort of things, and we ought to bring the methodology of science to the investigation of abductions, because even if it was terrestrially based, clearly something is going on, and anything we do to advance human knowledge would be a positive. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you mentioned in the UFO Magazine article is a wake state form of um, sleep paralysis. It's sort of it's related to narcolepsy, um, which is misunderstood and underdiagnosed. Can you fill us in on that? Well, one of the things that people have said is, is a way of sort of dismissing our work and reducing it to its most ridiculous uh, points was that some people were wide awake and outside when they experienced abduction, and therefore it can't be sleep paralysis. But there is a form of sleep paralysis known as cataplexy, which is always related to narcolepsy, which is to say that, that narcolepsy isn't necessarily people falling asleep at inopportune times but suddenly becoming over, overwhelmingly tired. And, and we don't know what percentage of the population is narcoleptic even in, in, its most, in its mildest form. So we can look at this whole thing and say, well, there's a form of sleep paralysis that exists when people are, are awake and outside and interacting with others called cataplexy. So you cannot say, well, we know it's not sleep paralysis because some people were wide awake when it happened. Well, that's not necessarily true. I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that the, that the number of narcoleptics in the abduction population is overrepresented or anything of the such. I'm suggesting that maybe we ought to take a look at that question and see if we can determine that. That might give us part of an answer for the abduction phenomenon. It might not, but it might might give us part of an answer. Mm -hmm. One of the surprising things to me was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Ted Rowe from NARCAP, but uh, we had him on the show, and I thought that he would tear apart hypnosis as a tool, but he didn't. He actually went the other way and said uh, he believes hypnosis is a good tool for retrieving memory, and the fact that um, the, the organization that sort of took hypnosis to task in the 80s um, was run by the CIA, uh, so that was suspect to him, or run by a, you know a man who was from the CIA, and that was suspect to him. Uh, why wouldn't they want alien abduction researchers looking in um, to abduction accounts via hypnosis? Um, do you buy that, or what? What? How do you come to hypnosis as sort of the thing that we need to do without? 
I think hypnosis is an overused tool. I think it's unfortunately misunderstood by way too many people. And the problem, the problem with hypnosis is you don't know whether or not the subject is in an uh, altered state of mind when that you suggest they're, they're in hypnosis. They may not actually be hypnotized. It may be something else going on there. But the, the real problem is a person in a hypnotized state becomes highly suggestive. And the suggestion can be very, very subtle. And I've, I've sat in an, any number of these abduction research um, in investigations where the operator, the hypnotist, is, is not getting the answers he or she wants. So they begin to probe deeper and deeper and in different ways to, to, to do that. And the, the, the subject picks up on those cues and goes in the direction they want to go. And, and, and you can see in, in, in Bud Hopkins' work, he's, he's in, uh, interviewing or has a fellow under hypnosis name that he quotes as Steve Osborne, I believe. And the, the guy says after the hypnosis is over, well, I thought I saw this thing, but I knew I was supposed to see it, so I didn't mention it to you. And, and that's very suggestive of, of, of the problem with hypnosis. You become very, very uh, suggestible, and the person picks up where you want to go. So as you probe and you ask the question and you don't get the answer you want or the one you think is wrong, and you ask the question again and again and maybe in different forms until you get the answer, and then you go in that direction. And, and, and in the first hypnotic regression session, you, you come into this thing, everybody is sort of, of, of new to it, so I think you get your best information out of the first or second session. But when you start doing 25 and 30 sessions with the same person, you've kind of altered the whole relationship. And I think the information becomes very, very suspect at that point. And we can point to any number of, 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 of cases where the hypnotist or the investigator has subtly led the person to the dire in the direction he or she wanted them to go. And, and it, it, you can see it in Hopkins' work and Jacob's work and, and Max's work. And, and Max said many, many times that he was struck by the matching of the what he called the experience, experiencer, the abductee, to the researcher. In other words, Bud Hopkins got the cold calculating aliens, uh, Jacob's got the hybrids, and Mac got people with an Eastern philosophy or aliens with an Eastern philosophy. And, and, and we kind of turn that around and suggest, well, maybe isn't what's happening there is that, that the researcher, and not intentionally, but is suddenly implanting his or her own ideas on the subject and picking up exactly what they want to hear. And when Mac was questioned about that, he said, well, I never said anything like that. Because you can look at um, Bryant's book on the MIT conference, and we've got videotape of him saying exactly that. So we've got all of those things going on, and the problem is the hypnotic regression. It's just overused. It, it is not a good research tool. It may be a very good therapy tool, but it's not a very good research tool. Yeah, and we're at a point now where, where most of these therapists are either famous or have a web presence, and so you can sort of pick and choose based on what you know about them that matches with how you, you know, whatever your outlook is and, um, you know, co-create a story that way accidentally, I think, too. Um, so people pick each other that way. And also Jacobs, you know, God, I mean, from what I hear, he's completely horrible in terms of not even wanting to hear from a potential client anymore um, if they don't conform initially to his, you know, evil, reptilian, whatever, whatever agenda. 
uh, story. If, if that's not your abduction experience, he doesn't want to hear it. Um, I mean, that, that just to me is appalling. And I, I don't know how they get away with it. So uh, what what has been, uh, you know, sort of the Hopkins, Jacobs, or, you know, Mac, before he passed away, uh, 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 answer to you? Um, I, I'm surely they, they've read the book, right? When, when that question was posed to him, and I, 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 it was a, a fellow at the L.A. MUFON uh, meeting, posed that question to, to Mac about what we had said in the book, and he said, I, I never said anything like that. I might have thought it. And I'm thinking, well, then you've just, you've just admitted that you see the truth of it. But I never said it out loud. And he said, if, you know, if we were saying that sort of thing, we must have misunderstood what he said. You can go to, to Bryant's book, and I think it's page 273 in the hardback edition, that you can see exactly where he's discussing this very thing, that there's a matching of the experiencers to the researchers. And we're suggesting that maybe the researchers are, are leading the experiencers of the abductees in the direction they want them to go. So they get what they're looking for specifically. Okay, so if you're looking into abduction cases and you're looking for new new patterns and, and trying to figure out what's what, um, what pool of people do you use if you eliminate the hypnotically retrieved uh, testimony? We don't necessarily uh, eliminate those. When we did our, our research into this, we used, I, 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 I think the number is 316. Uh, abductees, and not all of them had been hypnotically regressed. Some of them had used their other memory enhancement techniques. And what is interesting of those, one of the one of the uh, um, one of the abductees who had been hypnotically regressed and had these wonderful stories of of the abduction was then chemically regressed by a medical doctor to see if what she said in this chemically altered state of mind matched what what was said uh, under hypnosis. And there was nothing there, absolutely nothing there. So, so there's a question about the, the value of, of hypnosis. But, but you, 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 you talk to the people. Some of them have great memories. An awful lot of them talk about the material coming out of dreams. I had a very vivid dream, and that was where I, I had my first uh, realization that there was some kind of an abduction uh, event in my background. Uh, Betty Hill remembered the abduction uh, before they went to Benjamin Simon and he hypnotically regressed both, both Barney and Betty. But she got it all out of her dreams. She, she was writing down what she dreamed about it and remembered in the dream session or the, in the dreams. So there's all, there, there's all that sort of thing. And, and what we were suggesting is that what we need to do is take a look at an awful lot of material about the abductees to see if we can find a pattern. Mark Rodiker, the scientific director at, at QFOS, was telling me that it seemed to him that, that left-handed people were overrepresented in the uh, abduction population. I don't know what the heck that would mean. And he said his sample was fairly small, just 30 or 40 individuals, but there were too many left-handed people in it. And, and we were thinking that there's all sorts of things you could look at to see if it might lead uh, in, in the, to some kind of a conclusion. Are, are more Democrats than Republicans represented? Are, or, or overrepresented? Uh, what about blood types? Is there one blood type that's overrepresented? What about blue eyes and brown eyes? Uh, things that, that are not easily observable, of, um, of the abductees. Is there's overrepresenting in the population? When we began our research, I had written to a number of the, uh, abduction researchers and ask for assistance 
in trying to determine the number of people who may have experienced sleep paralysis opposed to alien abduction. We, we had developed a questionnaire and we wanted to submit that to uh, a large, a large abductee population. Now, one of the researchers even had the courtesy to write back and say, no, we don't want to participate. So here was an opportunity to, to, to participate in a, some, uh, a scientific survey of, of the abduction population to see if we could determine a, a, a way to discriminate between sleep paralysis and actual alien abduction. And the abduction researchers were not even interested in, in, in doing any kind of that, that any kind of research in that direction. Hmm. So, have you actually? I, already, I feel like I'm cheating because I already know the answer to this. But have you <laughs> ever? Uh, have you looked into any sort of uh, brain chemistry issues, overproduction of DMT in the pineal gland? Um, I don't know, schizophrenia-related things like that. Have Have you looked into any of those as possible answers? Uh, Dr. Cohn, you mentioned Bill Cohn, and he is a, a clinician, and and that was one of the one of the important reasons he was part of the research was to look at those sorts of things, and there doesn't seem to be any specific mental illness that leads people to believe they've been abducted by aliens, so that doesn't seem to be a direction this is going, which is not to say there might not be something else that we don't understand. Back in the uh, 1970s, early mid-1970s, I investigated a case out in Utah with Pat Roach, who claimed to have been abducted, and some of her kids had been abducted, and we could pin down the date because she'd actually called the police thinking there was an uh, intruder in the house, uh, so, so we had the precise date. And I, and I wrote about that case, and I said, unless there is an advance in psychology in the next few years, there's no explanation for this case. I'm now convinced that Pat Roach had an episode of sleep paralysis. It seems to be classic sleep paralysis. So that means clearly that, that there may be a psychological problem that we're not really cognizant of that may explain some of the abductions. By no means all of them, but there may be something like that explains part of them. And I think sleep paralysis is, is one of those those explanations. So there may be some correlation that we're unaware of now, but we haven't found anything like that. Well, what ha- explain to us what happens when, when you're paralyzed. Well, sleep paralysis, sleep paralysis. Is, is, uh, occurs at just as you're falling asleep or just as you wake up from it. And you suddenly have this, this, this feeling of complete paralysis. You often feel a weight on your chest. And about 80% of the cases of sleep paralysis, people think there's some sort of entity in the room with them, not necessarily an alien, but some kind of entity. It, it ends either by you falling back asleep or you are able to break it by, uh, by, by movement. But, but if you're not aware of what sleep paralysis is in, it can be a very frightening experience. And, 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 the the um, initial stages of sleep paralysis sound suspiciously like the typical abduction experience. When David Jacobs writes in Secret Life about the typical abduction um, scenario, he's he's also describing the typical sleep paralysis uh, scenario. And what researchers need to do is develop a way to discriminate between sleep paralysis and alien abduction because clearly some people who believe they've been abducted have suffered an episode of sleep paralysis. Now, what normally happens is people who are not familiar with sleep paralysis or what it is begin to ask, tell friends about this frightening experience. 
and if the person is familiar with the abduction literature, may say you've been abducted, and the person goes to an abduction researcher, is put under hypnotic regression, and then this very narrowly defined experience becomes a much larger ex experience as they probe it with hypnotic regression, which is not to say that that's going to happen in every case, and, and the sleep paralysis explains everything. And I think that's one of the problems we had with the abduction um, enigma, is people thought we were saying sleep paralysis explains it all. Sleep paralysis does not explain it all, but it explains some of it. Well, okay, this is maybe this is where we'll end up uh, parting ways on the issue, or maybe not, hopefully not, um, which is that what I take away from this hypnotically retrieved stuff is that um, it forms, like I said, it forms a narrative that is easy to recognize and easy to digest. Um, and therefore, it sort of discards all of the high strangeness that's associated with abduction phenomena. But I, So that's what I think hypnosis does. Um, but I, I don't see... I guess I'm trying to figure out how it is that a human being... Um, I mean, just imagine yourself, Kevin. <laughs> you have sleep paralysis. You think people are in the room. That's sort of it. Maybe you feel a pressure on your chest. How do you go from that to a lifetime of evolving narrative that doesn't falter in the way that, that say, a dream falters? There's nothing, even with the high strangeness, it's not, it's, it's high strangeness that makes sense within a context. It's not completely abstract like a dream. Um, how, how do you go from, from one to, to two? Through hypnosis. It, it doesn't seem, through, through the hip yeah, but it doesn't seem possible to really weave a, like, for instance, a, um, a Betty Andreessen type tale where it's so completely involved, you know, that, that how can that just be out of her imagination and she not know it? Let us look at something that's parallel which is satanic ritual abuse. If you remember in the 80s and early 90s, this was the big thing. Uh, uh, children subjected satanic ritual abuse and came up with these long involved tales. I mean, very, very complex tales of satanic ritual abuse, which culminated, I guess, in the McMartin case where the, the um, owners and teachers in the McMartin preschool were arrested and one of them spent seven years in jail and resulted in absolutely no convictions. But the kids were telling very involved tales. The, the investigators were getting very involved tales uh, as, as almost a lifetime of this uh, abuse. There was another case in Washington, and I forget the fellow's name. He was a deputy sheriff, and his one daughter accused him of, of, of having abused her in satanic ritual. And after eight hours of questioning by his fellow deputies, he admitted that he had done it, but he had no real memory of it. And using various techniques, they developed this whole thing. Now the question becomes, is there really satanic ritual abuse? Is there a worldwide network of Satanists that are abusing children and creating all of this, or is this something else? And, and in today's world, almost everybody accepts the idea that this this satanic ritual abuse was nowhere near as widespread as it had been reported to be. It was nowhere near as complex, and yet you were getting the same complexity of tales about satanic ritual abuse as you were getting or as you get from alien abduction. So there is a mechanism in society, and there's a mechanism in the research that allows these tales to evolve so it becomes like it, be, it has been a whole lifetime of, 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 of abuse or abduction. 
So we have to look at all of those sorts of things and say, gee whiz, can this explain some of the abduction phenomenon, or is the abduction phenomenon completely separate from this? But we find an awful lot of parallels, and at this point in the research, we don't have the ability to discriminate between what may have been produced through the therapy for uh, abductions, what may have been produced as a result of the constant hypnotic regression or the other memory-enhancing techniques used, and what is real memory of a, of a of real situations. Well, in the in the um, three hundred and what was it three nineteen cases that you looked at, I, I, I think um, three hundred and sixteen. But I'd have to go look up the number to make sure I got the number right. But it's 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 okay. It's, so three, okay, so three and change. Yes. What was the? Um, did you notice a difference between the hypnotically retrieved memories and um, the non-retrieved memories? Were the cases different? Not particularly, but but I think the but 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 the key to this is that that the people who were doing the research and talking to these people and and Ross Essie's Bill Cohn and I among those people uh, talking to the people about being being abducted. Uh, we're asking the same sorts of questions and getting the same sorts of of of, of answers. So we didn't we didn't really uh, find a way to discriminate between those who had been hypnotically regressed and those who had not. And it and, and and there became a pressure from those who had not been hypnotically regressed to undergo hypnosis to see if they could delineate more information. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think I pretty much agree with, with what Kevin has said about um, regression therapy. And Kevin, I think the, the mechanism in society that you're referring to is probably some sort of cultural contamination. Am I right? In that case, when you're, when you're talking yeah, about yeah. someone who's just, say, awakened with sleep paralysis and, and has uh, either visually seen or uh, has felt a presence in the room, uh, that person then, you know, actively looks for someone like a David Jacobs or a Bud Hopkins, and they are, you know, or they, or they, they look for someone who can help them explain that what this experience is. Right. And if they don't end up with David Jacobs, they may end up with somebody who believed in satanic ritual abuse. Mm-hmm. And in, in mm-hmm. fact, if you take a look, you find that that Richard Boylan had two women who came to him believing they had been ritually abused, and under his guidance. His hypnosis <laughs> became um, ritually abused. <laughs> no, became abductees, changed from mm-hmm. what they thought they had been to something else, and eventually said, "No, no, this is not right. We we weren't abducted. This was, we believe it was was satanic ritual abuse." But but there there uh, are people um, who who seem to uh, implant their own belief structure on their clients, which, which gets us to the point which is to say you can be a researcher or a therapist, but you can't be both because at some point there's going to be a clash between the, the two, whether you are doing research or you're doing therapy. Not saying one path is the better path to follow. It's just you have to decide you want to be a therapist or a researcher. What, what have uh, professional psychotherapists or what have you have you interviewed anybody about the use of hypnotic regression? Because, I, I mean, I've talked to a few, and um, and frankly, and I've said this before on the show, that they are aghast at how this is used in ufology as some kind of tool. Uh, and I don't seem to be able to get through to a lot of people about that, in that 
um, there is not just the leading witness, uh, you know, the, the, the leading therapist syndrome with all this, but there's also cultural contamination. There's also the desire to please the therapist. There's so many issues with this uh, as a whole. But unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, these, these uh, you know, uh, I want to, I, I use the, this is probably not the right way to say this, but these top shelf uh, abductionologists uh, have essentially set the tone for what people believe that this experience is. And, and that, that then puts, uh, I mean, I, I speaking only for me, that puts me in a real bad situation because uh, I'm not someone who's ever needed anything to remember experiences at all. Um, so what, what do you think you can do to actively change the tone of, of this, this discussion over these, uh, these experiences for people? Well, what we had attempted to do was, was through the abduction enigma was explain the pitfalls and make some suggestions about the way we could change this for the better instead of doing case study, which is what in essence has been done, but move it into other scientific arenas. And, and instead of that, we were attacked for saying all abductions are this or all abductions are that or all abductees are this or all abductees are that. And that was not the message. The message was let's look at, the re- let's look at ways to improve the research. And, and, and you're absolutely right. The prob- part of the problem is hypnosis and the misuse of hypnosis by the abduction researchers and not realizing that, that uh, hypnosis is not the pathway to the truth. And I remember when I first started abduction research, in the mid and early 1970s being told if someone says it under hypnosis it must be true because people don't lie under hypnosis <laughs> simply not true at all people lie all the time under hypnosis and 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 so you've got to look at those sorts of things and say okay what can we do now this person has told me this tale how can i go about verifying this tale and if you're a therapist the 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 validation is not an important step. If you're a researcher, the validation, validation is the most important step. You've got to find a way of validating what is going on, and that's not being done. We're accepting everything being said under hypnosis being absolutely true. We don't look at the transcripts, and, and I've, read, I've read a lot of Bud Hopkins stuff that he's published in his books, a lot of what, what David Jacobs has published in their books, and if you read that, you can see where they've actually been leading the patient to where they want them, want them to go. And, and, and Richard Borland had his license in California suspended for doing exactly that. And I think it was Edith Fiore who was doing past life regression with, with uh, a client, had her under hypnosis, and, and the client said, I don't, I don't remember anything, I don't see anything. And Fiore's comment was, well, then make it up. Oh. Well, what kind of research is that? We've got somebody out there like Barbara Lamb. Uh, who I've, I've heard a couple of times, and, and this is a woman who's actively trying to train people to do this. Um, uh, so it seems to be, I mean, of course, in the late 80s, early 90s is when it was the real boom uh, of regression therapy and, and uh, Hopkins and Jacobs pretty much at their peak at that point. But this, this doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like the medical community or the mental health community is taking active steps to try and do anything I don't want to say outlawing, but uh, you know, severe deterrent uh, efforts being put forth at these therapists or hobbyists, in the case of some, um, you know, to really publicize this. Because I've looked online a lot for uh, data to essentially refute, uh, you know, 
any sort of alien abduction regressive memories. And it doesn't seem to be a lot out there. It doesn't seem to be that well known because I still get people writing me to this day asking me, hey, who do you recommend for regressive therapy? And my answer is nobody. Um, Which is a damn fine answer, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, that, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I think they've set the tone. Uh, I don't see it going away at any time soon. I mean, you know, all, all gratitude given to the book you wrote. Um, unfortunately, these people who have been regressed, I think for a lot of them, I mean, in reading about the whole scenario of the regression hypnotherapy, it seems that the real danger to me is you seem to be actively changing who these people are. You're inserting memories that, for all intents and purposes, seem incredibly real to them. So my guess is that's probably where your backlash from the book came from, uh, is that you know these people, heart and soul, body and mind, believe this happened to them. Yes, and, and we tried to make it clear. Uh, Philip Glass had said to me at one point, well, why don't you why don't you give these people lie detector tests? And I said, what good would it do? They sincerely believe this happened to them. Right. Doesn't mean it did. Doesn't mean it didn't. But they sincerely believe it. So the test proves nothing, absolutely right. nothing. But these people sincerely believe they have been abducted by aliens. And, right. and, and it may be that at that point, some of the people, this is the only group they ever felt they belonged to. They've been outsiders their entire lives. Now suddenly they have an identity that's important to them. And we say, well, you know, uh, alien abduction, uh, we're not so sure. Uh, so we're, we're, we're trying to strip their identity from them. And I think, I think that's where part of the backwash came from as well. But what we were trying to say, let's make sure that this really happened the way it did and if so, let's find a way to help these people who are crying out for help. Right. But that's well, what, not being done. All we're doing is making them worse. What was your, um, and I'd, I'd read the, I apologize that I haven't read the book yet, but uh, what was your take on uh, the, like, for instance, experience or support groups? Uh, I know that um, pretty much everybody knows that I started one of the first online ones where people could go and, and talk amongst themselves. Uh, there were no researchers per se present uh, at that, but we also had a group in Maryland uh, called the C4CSG, which was um, pretty active for, for quite a while. And I know that one researcher who was involved with that group said that he was almost a little apprehensive about contaminating people with each other's stories. I don't know that any of the people in, in that group were hypnotically regressed at all. Uh, I think they held pretty much the same opinion that I did, that it was a largely a worthless tool. Um, but what was what did you find in the book, um, in writing that? What did you find out about experience or support groups that were not so positive? Well, we looked, actually, we didn't look at, at, at abduction uh, um, support groups per se, but looked at support groups in general. And it, and it really sort of, of, of depended on, on the specific group. If you read a book called Stolen Valor, talking about fellows who, who claim to have these horrific combat experiences in Vietnam and how it's destroyed their lives, and they would get together once a week and they would commiserate about this. And in one of the groups, and it was just absolutely hilarious, the, the therapist said, well, I, I can't get anywhere with these guys. And, they, and, and, and the reason was, well, you can't understand it because you weren't there. So we brought in a guy who had been in the Special Forces, had had two tours in Vietnam, 
uh, was an officer, and he brought in his documentation to prove that, that he was who he said he was, and he'd gone to school after, after his military experience to become a therapist, and sat down with these guys to talk to him, and as he was talking to him, he realized that one of those guys had been in Vietnam or been yeah. in combat. They were making the thing up, and yet right. they were using this to kind of support their, their mutual fantasies. And so you get some of that, and you have to be careful. If you've got a support group that, that is actually positive in nature, that can only be a good thing. But too often they generate into something that becomes negative, and, and instead of helping people um, uh, live a positive life, they, they degenerate in, into a very negative, it take them, takes them to a very negative place, and that's not a good thing. So you have to take a look at, at the groups and, and, and the dynamic of the group, and if you find it spiraling downward, you've got to break it up so that you can get the people who need the help some help they can get. If it's a good, positive thing, hey, great, that, that, that's good, but too often it just, it just becomes something that is not mutually beneficial. Well, I think, uh, uh, well, between uh, the lady's house that this occurred at and me being one of the facilitators of it, I think about midway through its life, we ended up having two researchers there. And uh, we all pretty much hung out one evening a little later than usual, and the researchers had left. And uh, I remember the young lady saying to me, you know, do we really need to have these researchers around because they're not really doing anything for us? Uh, they're not. They're not lending any sort of, uh, you know, a, a coping advice or uh, you know, uh, things about overcoming fear of this or anything like that. They're not really doing anything. Uh, I have to wonder more often than not if these support groups are nothing more than culling pools for, you know, writing a book uh, or something like that. If if there isn't, you know, the quote unquote researcher actually, you know, gathering a bunch of people together just simply to get material. And, 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 and that's a very good point, and it, and it goes back to what I said earlier, which is you can be a researcher or you can be a therapist, but you can't be both. <laughs> right. And, right. And, 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 and a lot of times you can do both fairly well, but there's going to come a time where the, the two um, um, methodologies conflict, and then you have to decide which way you want to go. And, and, and I, you know, I, I'm thinking that if, I, if I'm a therapist, I really don't want to do research. I want to help the person get better. And if I'm a researcher, my goal is not to, to provide benefit for the experiencer or the abductee, but is to gather information from that person. And I'm not, I may not be helping them by doing that. So, right. well, so that's absolutely right. You know, the, the researchers in a, in a support group are probably out of place. Right. Yeah. What, what is the, um, you know, there's a whole other side to this or a whole other facet to the abduction thing, which is uh, scars, marks, and implants. Uh, where did you guys go with that in the book? We found absolutely no good evidence that the, any of the implants recovered had anything extraterrestrial about them. When we looked at, <laughs> yes, um, and, and and it was just not what what, what we had found. But but you look at the, the 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 documentation for specific implants. Uh, you find out that that um, the the Scientific laboratories doing the research may not really be scientific laboratories, but uh, in, in one place it was like a fertilizer processing plant that had done kind of research and, and used their, their letterhead that sounded impressive, but it really had nothing to do with scientific research. In Bryant's book, he talks about um, an implant that was analyzed at MIT. I think it was at MIT, and, and they found nothing, nothing extraterrestrial or alien about it. 
So at this point, I can say with a, a fair amount of certainty that none of the implants recovered have ever led to the extraterrestrial. But I will, I will, I will qualify that by saying the one great fear I've always had is we find a piece of a real flying saucer, a crashed alien spacecraft or whatever, and we have an ally that turns out to be like aluminum. Uh, there's no way to distinguish between uh, uh, the aluminum made on Earth and aluminum that may have been manufactured on another planet. People sure. now talk about isotopic ratios and all that, but those can be manipulated. And, right. and so uh, at this point, I am aware of no alien implant that has ever been proven to be extraterrestrial in origin. And I know that, that some of these people that have uh, recovered implants um, there was an Israeli fella who had the auspices of his hospital, and they were ready to analyze any implant that would be submitted to them. And they, talk, they talked to a number of people who were in the process of gathering implants, and not one of them ever submitted anything for analysis in what I cons considered would be a, a disinterested third party. You know, They don't care whether it's alien. They don't care whether it's not alien. They just want to find out what's going on here. And, and, and they could get no, uh, um, no implants submitted to them for their analysis. It always seemed to go to people that had a rooting interest in this. And one of the things I remember during the, ninth, the, the 50th anniversary of the Roswell case was the this, this story that they had a piece of debris from Roswell. And it had been analyzed by a number of universities, and the chain of custody existed so you could take it from the crash site to the laboratory and proved that, that, that it, that's where it came from, and the isotopic ratios proved it was extraterrestrial. And when you got down to the bottom line and started talking to the scientist who had conducted the research, you found out that, A, the chain of custody did not exist, you could not prove it, and the things that he was saying about it were being taken out of context. That, yes, the isotopic ratios in the material he had were not naturally occurring on Earth, but the isotopic ratios could be manipulated. So it wasn't something that was impossible on Earth. So it didn't lead directly to the extraterrestrial. And that's where we are in the implants. We have gotten absolutely nothing that leads us to the extraterrestrial. There's nothing that has been recovered that cannot be explained um, in the terrestrial here on Earth to this point, which is not to say tomorrow somebody may not come up with something. Although I will say that Dr. Roger Lear... Um you know, says that uh, a lot of the implants are made up of meteor. And to me, I mean, <laughs> that's all the proof I need. You know, it's like this this, this intelligence, uh, whatever it is, has such a wicked sense of humor that if it's not alien, I, I could totally see it just being like, well, let's let's put some meteor pieces in these people since they just think we're aliens. We'll just, <laughs> just shove some meteor pieces under their toes and call it a day. I mean, I don't know. that that To me, it just seems like a giant cosmic joke. Just to, uh, I, I saw him at the X conference. To see him standing on stage saying meteor pieces in, inside people. Um, okay, what's the point, though? What's the uh, well, the, right? They, exactly. Other than that, it, it needs a brumch at the end of it. You know, I mean, okay. what could be more alien with with <laughs> meteor pieces in people? It's just well, like, I, and I think ridiculous. of Carl Sagan's great line from one of his programs where he said, "We're all made up of star stuff." Right. Star stuff makes up everybody on Earth, or star, Stardust. Wow, that was a good movie, by the way. Uh, but I digress. But 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 that's exactly what you're what you're talking about. We we just don't have anything that leads us to the extraterrestrial 
uh, or maybe I should say an extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like like maybe like the one something else the aliens should do, like when they're done torturing people with meteor pieces, is just like I don't know, start um, putting moon rocks in people. I don't know, just something funny, you know, make people start doing the moonwalk, just like little things like that that are just look, we're aliens, ooh, you know, something like that. I don't know. But, but, but here's another question: we, we, We've got this alien presence that, that manages to conquer space to get here, and yet their their um, hypnotic their, their their techniques for masking the the memories or destroying the memories are so poor that a guy with uh, an afternoons of, of, of classes on hypnosis can break through the the mental blocks they've erected, you know, and, and yet right. we have the technology and the chemical ability to to completely obliterate memories if we want to do that. And the aliens haven't figured out how to do that yet. So that, that the most incompetent researchers able to break through the mental blocks that they supposedly erect. And, and those are sort of the, the incongruities that we look, look to when we, when we look at abduction research. This doesn't make sense to us. What, did you, um, what, what do you have that, that is good in, and valid as a scientific tool to research this? Uh, other than hypnosis. Yeah, I mean, what would you recommend? What would you recommend people you've start got, doing got, for real research? Well, one of the things, one of the things that we, we talk about in the book, and, um, oh man, I can't remember the name of the, the doctor, um, who, who he, he, was, he was looking into the, the idea that, that the aliens were stealing fetuses. Um, the, the, I don't want to call it false pregnancy. Um, was it Richard Neal? And he did a two-part article in UFO magazine a number of years ago where he looked into all of these cases using the medical records and, and everything he could get scientifically to, to look at that sort of stuff and could find no evidences that the, the, the pregnancies ever existed. The implants would be a great thing to do. I mean, if you can get them to independent laboratories to take a look at them. Um, we suggested in the book that you get, uh, if you've got someone who believes that he or she is being abducted on a regular uh, uh, basis, get, get a full uh, body photographs of them so that you know where all their, their scars and their, and their blemishes are and so that if they come back and they suddenly have a new scar that appeared overnight, you now know this is true because you have mapped the entire body. Um, do a complete profile of the person so you know an awful lot about them so that you can see if there's changes in them. And, and, and then compare those profiles to lots of other people to see if there's not something going on. What happens if it turns out that the aliens are only abducting people with some really rare blood type? Well, that would be an important thing to know. And it might help us understand what's going on, but nobody has attempted to do do anything like that. It's all well. We're going to put you under hypnosis, and we'll see if we can't get you to talk about the cold, calculating aliens or the aliens who are creating hybrids. And by the way, Jacobs, where they where they abduct a woman and impregnate her and put her back in the population, sounds like it ought to be reversed. They ought to be abducting males to impregnate their people where they can keep them, keep them in control and put the males back in the population. But if, but if you, you throw the woman back into our population, then, then she's subjected to all the diseases 
that that are running rampant uh, on Earth, or accidents, or all kinds of bizarre things. But if it's, if you've got the female on your ship and it's an alien female, you control the environment. You can take care of her. So it seems like they're doing it backwards, uh, mm-hmm. as just a thought. But look at all of those sorts of things and start and start gathering the data to create the database rather than doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing today we did 15 years ago. We have not advanced abduction research at all, and we made suggestions back then on ways to improve it, and it just hasn't been done. Uh, did did um, William Cohn describe to you what he saw in terms of the beings? Uh, and if he did, did they match what abductees talk about? He talked. He talked about them being. I think, and, and, and again, I have to. If I if I remember correctly, I believe he talked about him being large insect-like. Huh. Okay. So, I mean, that's that's close enough, right? <laughs> but he did not. He did not talk about little about gray aliens with big eyes and that sort of thing. Hmm. Or as some people like to think of them the Seda reticulans. Reticulans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin, you mentioned Dr. Richard Neal. Um, with his, was, yes, it was Richard Neal who did the, uh, the research into the, uh, yeah. the, the pregnancy issue, yes. Well, here's, a, um, here's another commonality which you've brought up earlier in the show about uh, you know, labs making themselves available to do an analysis of, of uh, implants and what have you. Dr. Richard Neal actually tried to talk to um, you know, the, the, the two big names in abduction research and uh, kind of like, hey, you know, give me some... Uh, refer me to some ladies who've had this happen, and uh, from what I've been told, they lifted not one single finger to help him. And and this being as uh, as Don Ecker would call him a, a legitimate gynecologist, you know, with with all of the uh, um, you know, all of the certifications to do a really thorough job of examining these women and finding out what's going on. Um, and and I'm assuming Hopkins and Jacobs didn't do. Um, a, a single thing to to help him out to refer people to him. Um, so I, I, I personally, if that's true, I find that really telling uh, about the whole thing. As I, as I say, when we were doing some of our research, I tried to induce an, a, a number of, of abduction researchers to assist us um, to, to, with 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 that, and I didn't even get the courtesy of a response. I didn't even get a single response from from the researchers. Not not well. I just don't think this will be helpful type of response. Or no, I don't care to participate. I didn't get a response from them. Wow. And instead, we have to put up with them attacking us from afar. Uh, I know Bud Hopkins said, "Well, these guys never interviewed me," and and our response was, "Would you like to see the videotape?" <laughs> and then he said, "Well, they bought the videotape from somebody else." No, you sat down with Russ Estes. And Bill Cohn, and I think it was in L.A., in front of his camera, and you chatted with them for an hour, an hour and a half. So, and the same thing with um, Mac. I don't think Mac ever denied it, but but they, I know Bill and 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 Russ had gone out and interviewed a lot of these people at conferences and things like that. So we had a large body of videotape from these researchers, and they say, well, you know, you never talked to me. Well, yeah, we did. And here's the videotape. So did um. Did did Russ? Um, I, I spoke with Russ many years ago for quite a long time, but um, it, you know, Russ passed away. Yeah, yeah. Did he? And I know it's probably hard to speak, for, you know, for him, but I, I know that you guys work closely on this book, so I'm sure you know probably the answer to this. Did he pretty much just his, his thing to me was always he beat it into my head. You've got to look at the quality of the messenger. 
um, yeah. in anything, in any UFO case, period, uh, you have to look at that. And essentially, when I asked him at the time, what do you think is going on with uh, experiencers, he pretty much said to me, he's like, well, have you ever seen the John Travolta movie Phenomenon? And I said, no. And he's like, watch it, because that's what I think is going on. And I don't know if you've seen that film or not, but essentially... Yes, I have. Uh, I, I, it's a very nice film. I, I yeah. Um, so I gathered from that that he pretty much thinks it's all in your head. Um, at least that's what I got from watching that I film think, right I after you mentioned Russ's, it. I, I think Russ's um, idea was... I think Russ believed that there were terrestrial explanations for all abductions. Okay. I think that is where Russ was coming from. And Russ looked at the manipulation of the experiencers or the abductees, and he didn't like it. Mm, he he okay. could see what was being done, and he didn't like it because it was. It, he thought it was doing more harm than it was doing good. Yeah, well, he, that's. <laughs> he, he, he would have preferred to being do for it to be doing good and helping people. Right. Right. Um, so I, how did um, I'm not completely on board with him saying all with all abductions are terrestrially based. Right. But I have seen very little evidence to suggest the extraterrestrial being involved. And, okay. and, and again, that qualification, very little evidence to suggest that. But I think Russ believed that there was a terrestrial explanation for all of it. Are you, um, uh, I, I, throughout this conversation, I, I, do I gather correctly that you're very, very attached to the extraterrestrial hypothesis as the answer for, you know, UFOs in general, abductions in general. Um, do you, uh, are you extremely attached to that, or do you, do you ever go outside of that a little bit and see what, uh, what other well, explanation look, could be? When we look at the whole UFO phenomenon, to me, the best explanation is extraterrestrial, meaning alien creatures from other planets coming to Earth. But I also look at other possibilities. Uh, and, and one, as a, as a science fiction writer, that I like, of course, is the time travel idea, that they're, they're from our future coming back to, to um, assist us in some fashion. Right. I don't know what it would be. but well, When you say the, the, you know, that that would be the, the most plausible explanation to you do, you, do you then have a problem that there's you know, in 60-plus years of modern ufology, we don't have a shred of anything uh, of a... Of we have lots of evidence. We have lots of evidence. And, 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 and one of the things that, that really annoys me today is the debunkers saying, well, you have all this anecdotal testimony. Excuse me, when does anecdotal testimony become scientific observation? What do you need to make it scientific observation? Why, why are you attempting to reduce it all to this anecdotal testimony? Mm -hmm. uh, we have... Um, we have good, solid cases where the UFOs interacted with the environment with multiple witnesses and landing traces. We have multiple chains of evidence leading us to something extremely uh, or, or, or something extraordinary. Uh, we have the radar cases where the instrumentality is looking at the object and, and showing it as a real solid object, not some sort of nonsensical um, atmospheric propagation that, but, that, do, but do any of those things really point to extraterrestrial versus something else? I mean, as far as, uh, uh, let's, let's just say landing trace cases. You know, landing trace cases in and of itself, if, if you or I are out fishing or something and we see this 
very strange craft near the ground or on the ground, and it leaves some sort of burn mark and, um, you know, it was on a three-toed pro, you know, tripod type of thing, and it, then it gets up and it flies away. I mean, does that really tell us where it was from, what it was made of, um, no, you know, no, who was in it? it? It tells us it's not an Earth-based technology. Mm-hmm. Which, which is not... How does it... How does it do that because, exactly? Because there's nothing, there's nothing in, in our society that can do the things that these craft do. Now, when I say extraterrestrial, I think immediately of other planets, but mm-hmm. it might be multi, multi-dimensional. It might be time travelers. It might be something else. At, at hmm. this point, I think the extraterrestrial is the best hypothesis to explain what is being seen, but it's not the only explanation, and we have nothing that leads us directly, that, that, that we know of, leads us directly to the extraterrestrial. If there was a crash at Roswell, and if the government recovered the craft and the bodies, that may take us to the extraterrestrial, but that information, that um, evidence is not in the hands of the public. It's in very limited hands. Yeah. The problem we get into is one that, we, that we, we've had in society the whole, forever. Back at the turn of the last century, there were 15 guys running around with various carnivals claiming to be the real Jesse James. Well, you hmm. know 14 of them had to be lying. <laughs> I expect the 15th was too. But, but there are people who will say anything or do anything to get on television, to get interviewed in the newspaper, to become some sort of a celebrity for a few minutes. And we've had to fight that all along. So we've got to fight through all of that to get to the core of solid evidence that takes us in a certain direction. And if Mm -hmm. you say to me, do you have anything that proves extraterrestrial, I expand the definition to include the multidimensional, to include the time travelers, but the most likely explanation is they're from another planet. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at with with the whole landing thing is that, um, I mean, in all honesty, uh, I don't think very many people as compartmentalized as, you know, any black project could be. I think there's very little likelihood that we can ever say we don't have anything like that. I've heard a lot of people say that over the years that, um, you know, what this thing did, we just don't have that technology. Well, my question always for that is, okay, qualify how you know that. (laughs) Uh, and that's a good point, but we can take a look back in the 1950s where we had these sorts of cases mm-hmm. and we have that sort of evidence and we can say, okay, we now know 50 years later that the technology to do that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Therefore, that technology suggests something extraterrestrial. If you say in today's environment, uh, we see this craft streaming across the sky doing amazing things and it's outside the technology we have. I then point to the Blackbird, the SR-71, and say, this is 1950s technology, and, and, uh, and, and that, that plane is still incredible by today's standards. So mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying, but we have to look at the entire picture. And, and so if we saw that thing you described today, we've got to say, well, gee whiz, you know, that might be some experimental craft that, that had a, a mishap of some kind. But if we look at uh, a story that comes from 1950, we can say, you know, there really wasn't anything that could do that in 1950. That we know about. <laughs> I mean, right, really. I mean, 
but most most of most of the technology from the 1950s is now so outdated. Right. That I mean, we're aware of what was going on and what was happening in the 1950s in in the way of that technology. So I. I mean, what about what we're looking at as far as uh, you know? Not to bring up a nasty subject, but Nazi Germany was 20 years ahead in aeronautics of uh, of anybody on the planet. I'm I'm assuming that. Uh, you know, what I've read everywhere is pretty true for that. And I don't want to go down the whole Nazi UFO route, but, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, I, that's kind of always where I go back to is, is with that thing. I mean, I've, I've spent the, the past 20 years with this thing doing, I guess, predominantly looking at, at photographs and video to kind of weed out the hoaxes as best I can and, and to try and validate or the reverse anything that comes my way. Uh, with that kind of thing. And unfortunately, you know, I've started telling people these days that even if you've got a structured object with, uh, uh, in broad daylight and it's, uh, you know, within 300 yards of you, it really doesn't mean anything that we can't identify it because, number one, it could be something that, that we have that we just don't know about. And, and frankly, when you're looking at any sort of, whether it be landing trace or photographic video uh, work at all, it would be... Uh, my question will always be, you know, we don't know what's inside it. It doesn't tell us where it came from, but all it can do is really add to a growing body of, of things we can refer back to later on uh, down the road. If something happens to come out that we can match them up, then we can kind of weed that one out as it goes. I mean, stuff like the McMinnville, I don't know that there's ever been, you know, anything that looks like that around here. And, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've heard well, some... Uh, I think with McMinnville, you've got two choices. The trends were either telling the truth about how they photographed it, or mm -hmm. it was an incredible hoax. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, well, it, yeah. There really is no other explanation for it. That, that's pretty much how it is I believe, in all of them. <laughs> I think the trends were telling the truth. Yeah, I do too. And, and I mean, that, that, that's kind of like always where I go back to with the whole ETH thing is that, uh, you know... It, it, to me, it just doesn't add up as something, seems something much more strange than what we've kind of been told about. Because going back to the abduction thing, which, you know, you wrote the book about, and you, I'm, I'm positive, you've been studying it since the 70s, mid-70s. I'm sure at one time or another, uh, and probably maybe frequently, you've run into people giving you an account that is just so incredibly bizarre that it would... Kind of, if it was presented to you in a hundred percent factual way, it's almost one of those kind of things where, gee whiz, you know, I'm, I'm writing this book about abductions and I'm trying to put forth what I think is legitimate evidence. And unfortunately, this is so bizarre, I can't come forward with this. I mean, have you ever come across those kind of things that are just so incredibly well, bizarre? Like past the past the whole scenario of, you know, aliens in a in a flying machine landing and doing things. I'm talking about stuff that people report, which is uh, uh, visions of geometric shapes and uh, um, all sorts of other assorted weirdness with uh, altered states of consciousness and perception. Um, ever run anything in, like that in your travels? We ran into a woman who believed she'd been abducted. And so we thought, well, we'll take, we'll take a close look at this and see what we can and learn about it, and we thought, well, we'll carefully use hypnotic regression to learn what we could about it, and instead of going into the abductions, and, and we were very careful not to lead 
at all. We're aware of the pitfalls and, and, and aware of the problems with hypnotic regression. And, 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 and she was having um, trouble sleeping, having trouble uh, in, in that way, or very agitated state. We actually were able to, to help her, but it turned out she was dealing with past lives as opposed to alien abduction. <laughs> and very bizarre past lives at that. It's not what you would explain, expect. So it went in a bizarre direction, but we allowed it to go the direction it went. And in the end, she became much calmer and much happier in her life as, as we explored those sorts of things. Mm. But it didn't exactly go where we wanted, and it went in a very, very bizarre direction. All right. Any Anything, um, you know, in, in your... I mean, I guess at some point you have to say, you know, if you've been into this since uh, since you were a little kid, am I right? I mean, you've been into this since you were 11, 12 years old? I mean, interested you know, I in this say, subject? I would say that, the, that, that, that what got me interested in it was the uh, movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a, a little kid when I went to... My mother took me to see that movie. Have you, in the course of doing all of this work and it consuming a large amount of your time and, and, uh, and attention, have you ever noticed anything strange going on around you? Uh, sightings, noises, anything that you could define as anything? No, no. Not at all. And, and, and the interesting thing, the other interesting thing is, as a military officer, mm-hmm. I've had top-secret clearances, mm-hmm. which means you have to have extensive background checks by the FBI and, and all of that stuff. Right. And I, I had one when I first went in the Air Force, and then when I, when I joined the National Guard just before we were rotated into Iraq, um, since I was going to be the uh, S-2 for the battalion, I had to have a top-secret clearance, so we went through all of that again. And my, in, my interest in this topic was well-known. And, in fact, in, I think in the Air Force investigation, they actually put a couple of the articles I'd written for various magazines into the file. So they're well, well, we're, we're well aware of my interest in this, yet I always got my clearances. I never had any trouble with my military career because of this interest. And I, huh. and I, and I had seen nothing around me that I would consider supernatural or extrasensory or extraterrestrial um, at all. It's... I've, now you Any, made it sound awfully blasé. <laughs> Anything um, ever said to you by any of your superiors in the military or or, the or equals? Said to me, ever is right after I got back into the National Guard. Um, the battalion commander says, "Well, we'd really like it if you don't put your rank on these articles you write. <laughs> that's no problem." Huh. Um, and but but it's because. They didn't want, and, and this is understandable, they didn't want it to seem that they were endorsing what might be considered some radical beliefs by me. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and since I could append Ph.D. after my name now, that didn't make any difference to the publishers. And now I can, I can uh, Saturday I retire as a lieutenant colonel, so. Oh, wow. Well, by the, hey, by the way, um, thanks for going to Iraq. Um, oh, so but, if you'd like uh, to send a sack of money, just, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and interesting, that, the, 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 that has had an impact on my, on my writing career 
because I'm taken out of the environment and sent to Iraq and that sort of thing for a period of time. And the publishers are afraid that I wouldn't be able to fulfill my contractual obligations to them. But but now as I, I prepare to retire on Saturday, uh, in, the, in the last, like, two weeks I've sold two books. So uh, oh. my writing career is beginning to pick up again as well. So um, I, don't, I don't know. Well, there's a certain correlation between um, the, the military because, you know, Last June, I spent almost the entire month on active duty um, in the State Emergency Operations Center because of all the floods here in Iowa. Mm. And then in um, uh, 2005, I spent uh, quite a bit of September in the Joint Operations Center um, helping helping coordinate the activities of the Iowa Guardsmen who were deployed into uh, um, Louisiana and Mississippi for Katrina. And then last September, I did the same thing. I was one of the officers in charge of the Joint Emergency Operations Center. As we had, we had like 412 people called to state to call to active duty support operations in the hurricanes in September, and 411 of them deployed into the south southeast, and one of them stayed in Iowa, and I was the one that got to stay stay in Iowa. There you but, go. Um, have you uh, but, uh, have you ever been able to? To use the military clout to uh, to find out anything about this stuff, or do they like see you at the door and go, ah, "Randall, turn around and walk the other way"? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, no. I I I I often said jokingly is I ought to I ought to get a film crew and stand outside of what Hangar 18 at Wright Patterson Air Force Base <laughs> and say, you know, I just inside I saw the bodies. What's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> All right, come there, on, I man. Saw them, but, right, but but. Uh, but it, it, I've, I've seen some things that came through intelligence briefings. There, I, we used to get what was called the weekly intelligence brief, and it would be things going on when I was in the aviation, uh, the airlifter unit, things going on around the world that might impact our missions around the world. And periodically, a UFO report would, would filter through there. Hmm. Invariably, they run classified reports. It was just, here's something interesting that a flight crew saw. Really? And, and and uh, nobody really cared much about it that one way or another. But it, but but it it never seemed to have impacted my military career one way or another, uh, other than um, people would people would engage me in conversations about UFOs even when I'd rather converse about something else. And, right. and while in Iraq, um, with 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 the way the world is today, we had a number of our soldiers. Um, Actually, we got satellite dishes for a number of our units so they could get satellite TV. And um, they would get, like, the History Channel and things like that. And I had a couple of soldiers come up to me one day and wanted to know if I had a brother. And I said, well, no, what do you mean? And he said, well, we saw this guy with the same last name as you. Looks a lot like you on, on the History Channel the other night. And I said, well, that would have been me about 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, um, but it's never it's never inhibited anything that I did in the military. I, 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 you know, I've always gotten my promotions when they were supposed to come come along, um, and if there's been a problem, it has not had to do with my interest in UFOs or my writing about UFOs, but more with the um, uh, reduction in forces in the military and things like that, things outside the control of all of us, I, I guess you might say. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Kevin, give us your website or the best way to contact you one more time. Well, the website is actually a blog, and it's called A Different Perspective. So if you type A Different Perspective in 
to your search engine, you better put UFO with it because you'll end up with some. There's, there's like there's two or three manufacturers that, that use a different perspective. One of them makes granite products, I think. But if you put UFO, then you get to my website, or you can just go to it's www.kevinrandall one word run together dot blogspot dot com, and um, you can take a look at my blog that way. Very nice. And now, are you uh, writing for UFO magazine? Permanently, or was that yeah. one-off article? Yeah, what happened was, what happened was, I, I, it, it was what I considered the, UF, the the Kevin Randall attack issue, and there were two stories, <laughs> one by Stan Friedman, one by this other fellow who attacked the abduction enigma, I'm thinking, geez, the book's 10 years old, you just picked it up, what, what the hell is your problem, guy? <laughs> and so I wrote, I wrote to Bill Burns, and I said, hey, you know, I really didn't like this Kevin Randall attack issue, and I'd like to respond, and got a, got a note back from his. Uh, from his wife, or the, the editor, Nancy Byrne, and she wanted to know, uh, she said, well, what would you like to do? And I sent her an article, and she said, would you like to do a column for us? And I said, sure, I'll be happy to. So um, that article was not part of the column. The, I think the, first, the next issue will have my first column in it. So I, I'll be doing stuff, in, stuff regularly for a UFO magazine. And I'm speaking at the MUFON Symposium in August in Denver, and there's another symposium being held in Galena, Illinois at the end of the end of May, um, the Illinois MUFON group is put together. I'll be speaking there as well. So I'm moving back into the UFO arena. There you go. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Well, maybe a little rap- more rap- rapidly than people would like. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on Paratopia and doing the dish on the abduction stuff. Yes. Uh, my, my hope for you <laughs> is that you will Look into uh, DMT research, um, maybe The Spirit Molecule by Rick Strassman, um, or even Supernatural by Graham Hancock, um, and and then update us on what you <laughs> what you think. No pressure, no pressure to uh, to actually do that. But if you do, we'll that, be waiting to well, hear from you next week. We'll be waiting to hear from you. Yes. Well, the next the, the, I, I just um, a week ago Monday. Um, I just learned that I'd sold a book on UFO crashes, um, so I've got to complete. I've got to. That's that's going to be my big project um, until I can get that thing turned into them. So, uh, but it's it's a looking at, at at UFO crashes starting in in France in 840 AD, I think, is where we start, and go up to um, the Needles, California crash that uh, George Knapp um, investigated last year in May of last year. So it's a wide range, and my, my look at all of those sorts of things and my take on what's happened and whether or not this is legitimate or not, or whether it's just a meteoric fall or something of that nature. I said look into DMT, Kevin Randall. Don't make me say it again. <laughs> I, I was saying, well, I'll be glad to do that, but it might take a little while. <laughs> I'll send you a copy of a Terrence McKenna book, Kevin, and I can send it digitally, so there's no excuses. <laughs> well, uh, uh, yes, there is. There's a wonderful excuse. I didn't get it. It must have been lost in. Oh, <laughs> I'll make sure it's got a return receipt on it. <laughs> <laughs> then I have no excuse. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, thanks very much, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yep. Have a good one. You too. Good night. Good night. And did they have a good night? Find out. Never. On UPRN 105.3, Norland.
the greatest guests in the paranormal fields of the Earth? Of course you do. Then you'll love Paratopia. So won't you please join us at www.paratopia.net and be a good citizen. Friend. This is Stanton Friedman, and you're listening to Paratopia. So, Jeff. Hi. I knew you were a huge fan of the extraterrestrial hypothesis going into this interview. Right, yeah, huge. What, what's your uh, what's your take on it now? <laughs> I don't think it's changed very much, Jeremy. Huh, interesting. No, I, you know, what do you say? I mean, Kevin Randall is a is a, a very nice guy, and uh, uh, and and has made a lot of very valid comments about ufology, one of which I didn't get to bring up to him, which was uh, to thank him for saying that we need to stop revisiting the the, the trash of the past, as he says, uh, if we're ever to move forward with this stuff, leave behind the Adamskis, the Myers, and these people who just keep popping up like like a bad case of acne, uh, you know, and and try to go forward and go in different ways. uh, You know, and I, I like to think I... Well, that's probably... I go against the grain a lot because that's just... I hate authority. Um, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I mean, again, I'll just say what I said you know, to him, which is, you know, the, the landing cra- trace cases and all this other stuff doesn't equate to extraterrestrial to me. And I don't... You know, well, we didn't have that technology back then. Well, unfortunately, you don't know that. And, and I think, you know, I think too much has come up um, you know, in recent years about um, the, the Black Project uh, budgets and all this. I mean, it, come on. You know, even if you're talking about something in the 1950s, you know, 1950s is not that far away from 1945. <laughs> you know, five years of uh, of research at the brand new, I guess, uh, you know, top secret bases that were, that were studying this stuff and trying to engineer out some of the German technology? I mean, come on. Did they did they have the technology, I mean, you know, probably, of course we're dealing with probabilities here. Do you think it's probable that they would have the technology perfected to such a state where they could afford to just fly around civilians with it? Oh, I don't necessarily... I mean, wouldn't that shit be breaking down left and right? How many crashes do we have of UFOs? <laughs> I don't know, maybe one or none. Well, I mean, we've... we've... <laughs> That's what I think is funny about writing a book about crashes. It's like, and George Knapp investigated that case that probably didn't happen. Right, well, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure that if somebody legitimately reports that something crashed, something crashed. That doesn't mean it's extraterrestrial UFO technology. Um, you know, I, I mean, again, it, it's... Well, wait a second. Well, 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 wait, 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 wait. I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be the, the devil's advocate okay, on this Okay, be the because... prick. Well, I mean, think about this. You, you, if it's the 1950s or even the even the, the 40s, I mean, they were just forming in the 40s the what would then become the CIA and what would then become NASA and all that stuff. Okay. There's no way that they would have, even if they had, even if they thought that they had perfected a technology enough to fly around civilians, they couldn't possibly have thought that they had perfected the means to sweep up a crash site so effectively should something crash at that point. Like, all of that mechanism couldn't possibly have existed right off the bat from the inception of the CIA or NASA uh, or even the Air Force. Okay. Um, 
I think I get. So why I think would they I take a risk like that? They would. They so I'm saying I don't think that they that that anyone in their right mind would take a risk of flying um, a UFO type thing or whatever. Uh, you know, a wildly mystical technology to us commoners um, under the assumption that they could sweep it up if it did crash. I mean, they, they just couldn't. They wouldn't be able to do it. Well, if they're testing it, presumably they have something in place to do that. You know, to to they're prepared for some kind of disaster should it happen. I mean, you don't test something without right. I'm saying I'm that saying that's place. too early in the inception of these organizations, uh-huh. in the birth of these organizations, to have that perfected. I don't. I don't well, I mean, it, that depends on how you look at it. I mean, if they're test flying these things, then they've got it in place to clean them up if they crash. But the number two question is, is what the CIA later, many years later, said that they used uh, UFO reports to cover up um, their own Black Project, you know, test flights. So if they're doing that, you know, when did that start? You know, were they formulating this this mythical UFO thing way back then? And, well, people won't know what this is. It'll just be equated to spacemen, you know? Well, wait a second. Let's put it this way. Roswell happened, so either... It um <laughs> yeah, something something crashed in Roswell. It was either, you know, aliens or interdimensional or whatever, or it was a mogul balloon or something. You know what I mean? I mean, something crashed in Roswell, right? Or, something bad. We, well, something period. Something that the army swept up crashed in Roswell. So it took them like eight days to get out there after a farmer discovered the debris to come in and sweep it up. Obviously, they didn't have a mechanism in place to sweep up even just a mogul balloon, you know, if that's what it was. So I, I can't imagine that, you know, even in 10 years, they'd have perfected anywhere in the country that something could crash. Uh, we can run in there and sweep it up undetected. Even if they had a cover story of, well, it's all aliens. I mean, uh, you know, bureaucracies, they just don't work that efficiently. Well, <laughs> like I said... <laughs> You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what Roswell was. I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't think anybody knows what the hell happened out there. You know, as far as cleaning it up, we don't know how much there was to clean up. We've got all this testimony of you know having skirmish lines of guys lined up on their hands and knees picking up stuff um, that then presumably they weren't supposed to talk about later on, but you know that kind of stuff comes up. Um, it's like I said, you know, I, I'm not saying all of them, believe me. I, I, I do believe that the enigma or the other has presented itself as something in the air flying, or what we perceive as flying. Did that happen way oh, back? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I just, I think we should just nail down just some specifics of, like, what humans can and can't do. You know what I mean? Right. Like, is it really probable well, that that, well, we, that they were so efficient back then that they thought, well, if something that we're flying crashes anywhere in the U.S., we're going to be able to sweep in there, clean it up, and no one will ever know. Well, I think... They weren't even organized. They weren't even called the Air Force at that point, you know? it's like That's the thing. We don't know what we've had and when we've had it. We don't know. So it's going to be really hard to nail that down and say, this is what we had at this point in time. We don't know what we've got now. We, how can well, we possibly we, know what we had back then? I mean, and, and let's well, not let's not go from surmise, the let's not go from wait, the wait, hold on, shut up. Let's not go from the wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go from the <laughs> let's not go from the standpoint that all this stuff started with the Germans. Maybe it came from somewhere else. Maybe who knows? Okay, 
All I'm saying. Well, let's is, start with that. Is that okay? <laughs> we got to start somewhere. You got to, so let's start with Einstein. I mean, before let, Einstein. Let's say. Let's say. Come on. That I, I mean, yeah, okay. Let's look at it this way. Uh, UFO hunters. You said you really liked the the Nazi Bell episode that they did. Okay. Mm. They pretty much put it to Kecksburg. Look, here's Kecksburg, and here's this thing that looks damn similar with uh, runic writing around the edge, which was heavily, you know, used in, in, in the German culture back at that point. So there it is, you know, and they, like you said, they kind of just blew right by that type of thing. Um, but you've got these three areas. These are where these things crashed. You've got, you know, what, what was it? One in New Mexico, one in somewhere else, and then one near uh, Kecksburg, and there was one in Florida that was not damned far from Gulf Breeze, which is pretty weird to me. So if they're flying these, I'm not saying everything that was flying in the sky was this, but I think there's a, a really fuzzy, fuzzy line as to what you can call an extraterrestrial based on a landing case or a photograph or any of this stuff. We don't know that the, that the McMoonville photographs are extraterrestrial. We just don't know that. And no amount of pictures or testimony is going to prove it one way or the other. That's what's really confused the whole UFO issue all these years, is that we simply don't know what we have and what is the enigma presenting itself. Is it masking itself as this kind of thing, or is it the reverse, that you know, uh, whatever project we have you know, is, is kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say mimicked, but it's hard to distinguish because both of them seem unfamiliar to what we're used to seeing in the sky. You know, I, I just, yeah, it's, well, it's very uh, hard that, to say we that. Completely agree. Yeah, no, I, I have no problem with that, but I think that the whole sort of, uh, the, the rich Dolan speculation that, that there's, you know, trillions of dollars going to some black project, a secret NASA type thing. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a cap, there's a cap on, I think it's reasonable to say that there's a cap on, when that could have started, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, I mean, in the history of the country, unless you're going to say that everything we know about the history of the country is wrong, uh, you know, World War II was basically the starting point of all that stuff. Well, that's certainly uh, when, when Roswell, you know, 1947, two years later, something crashes in New Mexico, you know? Right, and, and so my point about, my point about that is... It, it, if, if it was a mogul balloon or whatever it was, if it was something that was top secret or a UFO, it doesn't matter. The point is, uh, whatever crashed there, if by their own admission, something top secret at the time crashed there. And so they certainly were lackadaisical about getting to it. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that, that between Roswell and like 1947 and then suddenly like within 10 years, 20 years maybe, they became so efficient that that they could go anywhere in the country and sweep anything up. So therefore, Maybe any of these the things could be government craft that we don't know about. I don't, I don't no, know. I, don't I mean, know. I mean, look at it this way: if if Roswell was, I mean, look what happened with Roswell. They they, they bring this material in. It's very strange. Um, you know, apparently there's there's other issues with that. That that they published that they've retrieved a flying saucer on a ranch outside of Roswell. Okay. What happened then? At that point, that's when the higher-ups said, what the hell is wrong with you printing this crap? Are you out of your minds? Uh, and therefore, the cover-up ensues from there. I think they learned a lot from Roswell, if in fact it's, it, even, it, it even connected to this enigma at all. 
they learned a hell of a lot about how to clean and shut things up. So from there on out, 10 years is not, I mean, hell, I'm, I'm not so sure that five years wouldn't be enough time to turn around and say, look, we need some kind of crew in place that if this thing goes down in a controlled area where we're flying it, we've got some people to clean this shit up before anybody sees it. And if they do see it, we've got to have some kind of excuse. And, and, and the UFO crash syndrome is born from that. Um, and I mean, you know, now, now I'm going to take your side of it and go this way. Because oh, no, this you just don't get the flip, no. <laughs> yes, 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 I'm Arlen Specter here. I, the little light bulb in my head just went okay. off. Um, so, you know, we're always saying that, that it's, how could you keep a secret like this? What could have been a bigger secret to keep for a whole bunch of people to keep that they would have had to have kept uh, than the fact that we had imported Nazis to help us run things and show us scientific breakthroughs, show us efficiencies uh, that we might have been lacking in military, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I mean, a whole bunch of people, pretty much everyone, had to know that they were working with Nazis and bringing those people over, and it wasn't public knowledge. And if you think about that, that would be the equivalent of, after 9-11, <laughs> all of a sudden, we're bringing Al-Qaeda over and working with them. And nobody's telling anybody anything. I mean, that's that's sort of like the equivalent, right? Okay, yeah, I see. How could that possibly have happened? And yet it did happen. So it's completely possible to keep giant secrets like that, like Roswell, like anything, for years and years and years. Hmm. I think, yeah, I think it is possible to keep secrets. It just depends on how you keep them and keeping people compartmentalized. Would people be working with Nazi scientists at Area 51 where they you know, supposedly took them after the war to do all this, you know, engineering work because they were so far in aer- aeronautically ahead of us um, that that we wanted that. So would those people know they were Nazis? I don't know. Would they? I mean, if you're, wor- if you're a, you know, a, some kind of sub-scientist on one of these projects that they're building these things, you know, couldn't they just be, could they be Austrian? Could they be, uh, you know, I mean, does it, are you going to immediately equate these people with Nazis? And the other half of that is, is that the Nazi regime put a lot of people to work uh, for the, the good of the motherland that, that, that frankly didn't, didn't want to. <laughs> you either did it or we kill you. It's one of the two. Or we kill your family. So you're going to work for us. You're going to do what we tell you. I don't think they, they viewed these scientists as necessarily the enemy per se, well, that's what they say, right? Right. Like that's, that's a lot of what they say. But again, if you look at the Al-Qaeda thing, I mean, would you believe it? Like you personally, if if a whole bunch of Al-Qaeda were suddenly working for the government and they just said to you, well, we didn't want to be with Al-Qaeda, would you would you just take them at their word? Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a largely different scenario than, than the Nazis were. But, um, but I... It's all compartmentalized, dude. That that there's nothing that. But somebody wrote up the documents. You know what I mean? Like somebody wrote up, yeah. Project Paperclip, and then delivered the orders. And right. All of that. Right. So all of those people took those secrets with them. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it definitely it's possible to keep this stuff secret. But I, I think you also have to have some kind of cover story in the case of leaks, and you also have to have controlled leaks. You know, i.e., people like Bob Lazar and and others. I'm sure that that have come down through the pike over the years. You've got all of these things. That uh, are just they're they're uh, they're mud in the water. I mean, that's that's really what you have to do. You've got to set up some kind of uh, of way to if something does get out, 
uh, how about we leak it out? And, you know, then we'll destroy who's ever said what about whom. Uh, and it just goes on and on from there. So at this point, I'd say it's worked because not only have they done their work, but ufology has done its own work of taking a dump in the pool at regular intervals. So, uh, you know, anymore, go to the X conference. They don't need to do anything uh, if there's a secret to keep. I personally don't think there is any uh, involvement with the government and what we know, what we're talking about as far as this phenomenon goes. I don't think there is I, – I, I just don't believe that they know what we think they know. Uh, about it. I don't think that there is a um, I don't think they have all the answers and are holding all the cards. I just don't buy that. Uh, I think there may have been studies done on it at one time or another. I don't necessarily believe that that's still going on. Although it may be. So who knows? But but no, I, you know, Kevin's obviously very attached to the extraterrestrial, but he leaves room for that to be open, which is great to hear him say that he leaves those other possibilities on the table. But, I mean, I'll say it again, I don't see anything uh, in our, you know, in our looking through this whole enigma that says this is an extraterrestrial thing. I don't even see that as the easy answer. (laughs) I don't see that as an easy answer at all. Uh, I mean, I I look at it from the standpoint, you know, we don't even know what reality is yet. How the fuck are you saying that? Well, uh, that's just it. I I think the ETH, it's like Newtonian... Physics, you know, it sort of um, is born of what we thought we knew. And now that, you know, the new quantum physics, it's not even new, it's been around since Einstein at right. least, um, you know, changes everything, but it just hasn't bubbled to the surface and, and done away with Newtonian physics in the way that it should. Right. Um, but ultimately, then, I'm, I'm left with, so what? Like, does that really change... What does it matter? I guess that's the thing. Is like, does it matter what their modus operandi is? Does it matter if they live on planet X in the Pleiades or if they live on planet X in another dimension? Somehow they've figured out how to travel to here. Uh, what's the difference? Like, why why does that matter either way? Do you have an airplane I mean, landing I- on your roof or something? <laughs> You hear that, huh? That's the Air Force One photo op. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, out, outside of the fact that 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 the ETH, the way people in ufology seem to approach the ETH is to say, it's like Star Trek. They're like us. They're coming here and doing things we can recognize. If you do away with that, do you see a difference between interdimensional or, you know, however they get here, you know, interdimensionally, planet hopping, whatever it is? I mean, does, does that matter? Does it matter? Yeah, that's just an issue of technology at that point, isn't it? Understanding physics. Well, we don't even know that it's technology as we think of technology. I mean, it's it's. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine today at work or this evening at work, and uh, I was telling him that um, you know, sitting back and looking at this stuff, and and especially focusing on the on the high strangeness, the bizarreness stuff. <laughs> what's the matter? The airplane thing. <laughs> I was pretty, I was pretty quick with that day, right? Um, uh, I, I was saying to him, I said, you know, I, I think that, and this may be hard for people to get their heads around, but what isn't these days? I think of the high strangeness stuff, and and just in the the disconnect of what your visual cortex is telling you 
versus what your brain is telling you is physically possible. Let's set that aside. As, that's a bizarreness factor right there, but that's not all of it. I'm looking at this bizarre and thinking, why is it so bizarre? Why does it appear in such, a, in such an irrational way to us? And I think, it's, I think it's as good an idea as any to say that our existence in this reality is more like a dream or fake uh, in that I hear so many people talk about, myself included, about any kind of paranormal-like experience with this stuff in particular is more real than real. Uh, and, and taking that and going, going to that bizarre aspect spot of it, I have to wonder if it's not just so bizarre, not because it's from somewhere else or, or they aren't us or anything like that, but rather that that is what's real. What we're living in is the unreal. Uh, we're, that bizarreness aspect is what really is. Um, and, and our minds just can't make sense of that because we're living in this ping-a-rock real reality. Uh, and, and what they're showing us is, is a much broader picture of what is. And I know how that sounds, and I know it sounds weird, but I'm saying it anyway. Um, so... I don't know. You distracted me with the plane thing. I can't think anymore. Oh, that was perfect. Uh, that's that was perfectly said. That's that's kind of where I'm coming from with it lately. And again, I mean, I'm definitely going to send Kevin that book. I mean, I, I want him to read that um, the Spirit Molecule for sure, because I, and I don't know how many people, at least our listeners, have have read it. And I know Zed's probably rolling his eyes at this point, but. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, uh, in that, which you've read it, you know, there are cases in there, people in there who said that these beings that they encounter in a DMT experience began to cut them up surgically, devouring them, this kind of stuff. I mean, this is really high, strange stuff, which again, relates back to the whole, you know, uh, operating theater uh, sterile environment type of uh, feel to this stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, getting back to that, do you think that the, the are you like me? Do you think that the fact that they're he's finding meteorite bits in people wow. is real? In the same way that if we thought we were all being abducted by the Easter Bunny and suddenly we found peeps <laughs> as implants inside our big toe, it would be like that kind of joke. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, first of all. Uh, I can't say because I haven't looked at his files to say, how does he qualify this as a meteorite? Much like our Cal, uh, our mutilations episode, how do you qualify that it's a meteorite? Because uh, most meteorites are cataloged. Did they put a, you know, a piece of the Sukkot Aline uh, meteorite in someone? That would be a little weird because at that point I'm thinking – did they go to a jewelry shop and buy a piece of meteorite and, you know, in polishing it and got a splinter and 20 years later, look at this implant I've got. I mean, I don't know. Uh, how does he qualify that it's a, it's a goddamn meteorite? I, meteorites are everywhere. I mean, um, the, the crap rains down on us all the time. So I, I don't really see that as anything. I don't, I don't have a great deal of faith in the Dr. Lear thing. Sorry. You know, do I find it now? Let's go. Let's let's turn this around to George Hansen. Fits perfectly into his plan, doesn't it? <laughs> Meteorites are gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
No, but it fits right into the, you know, the, 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 the weirdness, the, uh, the, the sardonic, uh, uh, sideswiping humor. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm getting it, at. It fits into all that very well. But is it what this is? I've got serious doubts of that, but it doesn't matter in the in the long run because much like Colin Andrews would tell you or any of these things, well, it's it's there, and even though that person may have chipped their foot on a goddamn meteorite, it's still significant because it happened, didn't it? <laughs> Bizarre. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So I now I don't I don't I don't really put a lot of stock in that, but he'd have to qualify to me. How is it a meteorite and all that? So I, I don't I honestly don't know. Um, it certainly it certainly feels the part, but who really knows? Who really knows? Um, well, I'm just glad we um, you know when when we first started off the show we we said that uh, we we're going to try to have as few mainstream ufologists on as possible. We pretty much made that clear, and and if, I'm I'm gonna pat us on the back for once again having another mainstream ufologist on, uh, and taking him out of his element, and having him talk about not Roswell, right, right, <laughs> you know, in the way that we had Bill Burns talk about psychology and not well Roswell, not Corso, yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm really glad that that these guys are at least receptive to doing these shows out of their element, you know, yeah. Yeah, and it's it, it. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of a way to not sound like, well, we're right and they're wrong, or we're ahead of the game or something. But there does feel like there's in talking to him that there is still something missing in his in his equations that that we're on to. You know, mm. uh, like like it's almost like well, it's great that he's looking at abductions <laughs> and, and thinking. <laughs> And taking the stance that that the that the mainstream abduction people are are full of it, it was Jeremy Blow. Uh, he didn't. <laughs> yes, but he hasn't. He has. Yes, blowing my own horn as I'm prone to do, both physically and oh, metaphor. Jesus, oh, so thank you for that. Uh, in any event, uh, but he's not willing to go that extra step and and actually look at alternative explanations. It's like right. great to to have a bitch fest about what this thing isn't, mm. but then to not look at other possibilities such as. Too much DMT in the pineal gland, well, <laughs> or whatever shaman experience um, seems like. Um, I don't know, sophomore. I don't want to be mean. I'll tell you why that more of these mainstream people do not look into this. And and I've read you a piece that I'm working on for UFO Magazine that I read to you. That is the reason. The reason is is because talking about a DMT experience with a nuts and bolts ufologist. Um, so, and which I, I think Kevin Randall's, I, I, at least I consider him a nuts and bolts guy when it comes right down to it. Um, that is too close to deeming the whole thing in a psychological framework. And, and the psychological explanation in ufology is like the equivalent of the Antichrist. Uh, uh, they, they work very hard in abduction cases and in any other UFO sighting cases to refute the psychological. That is the problem. That's why they won't go near that kind of thing, because that's too close to saying it's all in your head. And that's but not that's what where he's doing it goes. anyway. What's that? I mean he's sort of he's sort of saying that anyway with sleep paralysis and Well, that's for uh, part of them. That's not for all of them, he said. 
I mean, that certainly right. doesn't go for all. Of, I'd very much like to have him back on to talk about what ones he feels are valid uh, and why, um, which we didn't have time to get into with him. But we should do that at some point because Kevin's a good guy and he's he's a, a good researcher. I mean, he, he, you know, he. Uh, I, I think what I hold to be, you know, of of high esteem for him is that. He can write about a witness in one book, and if he finds out before the next book that this person was full of crap, he's very upfront and says, look, I've since found out this. He's not ashamed yes. to say, I got taken by this. I didn't, you know, uh, it's not that I made any mistakes, but when someone is out there to deliberately deceive you, this is what happens. Uh, and, and it does happen. And it's not like, you know, oh, well, screw Kevin, we can't listen to him anymore. No, he's pretty upfront and honest about it, you know. Uh, and I think that's to his credit to do that. I think, uh, though, at the same time, you have to realize that he is a writer of this stuff, and that that's what he does for a living. So, I mean, there's there's two ways yeah, to look. What at could it. be what could be more nuts and bolts than we produce a, a hallucinogen in our brains that's made of chemicals that produce an effect, and maybe abductees have way too much of that or have sporadic moments of that happening. You know, how, however nuts and boltsy you can make that. I mean, that's not just psychology. That would be an actual physical thing in your brain. But the answer may not, is not qualifiable as a nuts and bolts reality. That's the problem is that when you, when you're, you're, you, you got to jump all the way to the end of that and say, okay, what is Jeremy experiencing when his pineal gland goes into overload and produces a batch of DMT for him at 3 a.m.? What it, is what he's seeing really there, or is it all product of Jeremy's brain in an altered state? I don't believe it's all, I don't believe it's, for that matter, I don't believe it's the product of an altered state. I don't see how there could be so many commonalities across all of this research that points to different things um, in completely different non-pathological people. You know, I think that's damn suggestive of something that's altering your perception to see things that are already there that we are well, that's, dampening that out. Be, that's the answer. That wouldn't, wouldn't that also be uh, nice for the nuts and bolts researcher? Part one is, okay, we can say that some people are producing too much DMT in their brains. But part two is they're not the ones producing it. Someone or something is stimulating them to see this. How is that happening? Why is that happening? That's, Where is that coming another from? Possible. That's a whole other... Yeah, I mean... I mean, that's a whole... Avenue of uh, research and books, right there. I mean, the whole the whole interesting thing would be to to do a study, and, and I've asked a lot of people, and and frank, frankly, you don't have to ask a lot of times when it comes to an abduction experience that happens at night. Uh, a lot of people will say, "I woke up at three fifteen a.m., and the three o'clock hour is the time when your brain is producing the most DMT." Um, so that that's a little bit, you know. Again, leaning towards that direction. Um, and, of course, this all leads up to the ultimate question for the nuts and bolts people uh, that they would come back at us about is, okay, how are these things manifesting then at that point? How, uh, you know, from my experience, when I saw the, the fractal pattern and then saw the being crawling out of it, that seemed to be within my head, not really there. But then the being took on a solid form within a perfect overlay of that visual experience. And its hand 
hit the wall, essentially saying, I am solid, which is why I've been saying, you know, it starts in your head but ends on the floor. That's a real basic, simplistic way to say it, but it's saying that there is a, there is a, to me, there's a missing chain in that that says, okay, how do these things then become real to us here in this you know, in this uh, land of solidness and, and uh, densely packed molecules, how does that happen versus something that is a, uh, an altered state of consciousness? How does that happen? You know, how is it that Amazonian, Amazonian shaman who have never seen anything uh, of technology uh, that we've had in this country, how are they painting flying saucers from drinking ayahuasca? How? <laughs> you know? How there's you know there there's some kind of point where you got to say okay you know Terence McKenna sees a guy who was exposed to ufology in his younger years sees the Adamski craft which he knows is crap that again is another clue to you know what you're dealing with it's you know it's something that desires to be acknowledged obviously uh, presents itself but then at the same time renders itself you know, ridiculous by, you know, tweaking itself to look like a 1937 Hoover NCAP. So, <laughs> I mean, that to me is just mind-blowingly fascinating stuff to get into. And, uh, uh, and when it comes to the ETH, where a lot of people in this stuff come from, it just feels like you're kind of... Where are you where are you going now? I mean, it's John Flynn. Actually, I don't know if you listened to the episode or not, or if you remember him saying this at the X conference. But man, he put it best. It's like it's like listening to Grandpa talk about old math. <laughs> you know, it's 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 out. It's not relevant to your world. You know, you got to listen to it. Why? Yeah. Why are you learning this? Yeah. I mean, it just is so outdated, and that's why I. I don't know. It just and again, it's it's like I, I mean, I applaud Kevin Randall for for taking this on in the way that he has. But I feel like once again, it's just a limited, it's a very limited way that he's going about it. Absolutely. And in this conversation that we're having is, I mean, it's not really tooting my own horn or your horn. It is a richer, deeper, more in quotes real conversation. I think about this stuff than than just saying sleep paralysis or just saying DMT or just saying aliens you know well and and uh and and my answer is is that where do we go from here is i don't know uh i don't i i think we need to get someone on who is vastly superior in quantum physics knowledge than either of us uh to really you know someone like mr mr uh, kaku if you are listening we want you to come on the show please why wouldn't you be and why wouldn't he is right um because i think that uh you know, we could postulate a lot of this stuff to him and see what he comes back at us with as far as what's, what seems plausible to him or what seems uh, um, like it would make some sort of sense in some way uh, as to what we're talking about. Cause it just doesn't – I think there's a lot in this direction to look at, whereas you're looking at the extraterrestrial place, there's really nowhere to go with that. The mushroom is there. You know, the, the, the crash piece of Roswell debris is not, um, and likely never has been. 
So it, it just it seems like a dead end to me. It, I mean, never mind the fact that it's simply when you really go through the the honest raw data that's out there, it doesn't it doesn't fit. It just doesn't mm-hmm. fit. And and uh, and I agree in that sense with with Jacques Vallée who says if it doesn't fit the pattern. You, you move on. You look in other directions. You examine other options. And it just seems like ufology hasn't wanted to do that. You know, they, they don't know where to go with it. But, uh, you, you know, since the Maccabee interview has already aired by this time, how telling was it that a lot of the ayahuasca paintings and, and artwork that you see come out of those experiences involves all of these animals and uh, and things like that in, in visions and how interesting was it that he said that Ed Walters, while he was in this beam, saw visions of animals and all sorts of other things like that. Wow. I mean, I want to hear more about that. And we're going to... Well, I haven't read the books in a long time, but I think it was the, the second book that he wrote mm-hmm. with his wife, I believe. Abductions and Gulf States. Uh, yeah, where he talks about a giant lizard. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing a giant lizard coming at him and it's scaring him and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, th- I mean, there's all kinds of crazy nonsense going on, yeah. you know? Yeah, and again, to Ed's credit, he had the balls to write that in a book, you know, that was being read by a lot of people at the time. Gulf Reese was a hot, hot case. And, and again, you know, when you're talking about any sort of reptile-ish thing, that's very common to the ayahuasca experience or the DMT experience that they're seeing a lot of snakes. Uh, Graham Hancock brought that up in his lecture that the, the snake is a very... I've seen the snakes. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that that's a very common you know, thematic in these types of, of experiences. So, I mean, again, there it is. In a major, major UFO case, there it is. Um, mm-hmm. But again, people don't want to go in that direction because... I think that they feel that that's just a psychological end. And, okay, well, where do we go now? I, I, I look back at, uh, at Terrence's spe- speech when he's talking about the giant telescope in Arecibo and uh, how the, the giant telescope is, is a bowl. It's a big natural bowl. It's built into a natural bowl in the Earth. And, um, and they kind of hollowed this thing out. And then they, they planted uh, grass underneath the telescope bowl to... Uh, to cease erosion. Uh, and so, in addition to the grass, they had to have cows there to keep the grass under control. And there, underneath the big telescope that is searching for signals from extraterrestrials, underneath of that grows the mushroom. <laughs> you know? And he's like, they're looking up and it's at their feet, you know? Um, uh, and uh, and that's, that's, ir- you know, that's irony, you know? pronounced right there um but it uh uh, i I think it deserves a hell of a lot more study i think rick strassman started the ball rolling and somebody else has to push to get this thing looked at further uh and i think we need to do our part by trying to get someone in quantum physics to talk to us about that very aspect of how would something be a, a visionary state uh, some like Kaku says that these beings or these things may be around us all the time and we just can't perceive them. Okay, well, how does perceiving them then manifest them in this place? How would that work? Does that work? Can it work? Is it even thought of? Um, I mean, that's my big missing link at this point is how does that work? I mean, 
I'm not talking about, well, it was a hard radar target. Again, that doesn't mean shit to me. That doesn't mean we're looking at the phenomena. That just means an unknown, you know, target on radar. You know, it's as good as a sighting. The pilot sees it out there. I just, I, and, you know. As he was talking about that, and I was thinking of you and how you were thinking about what he was saying, because <laughs> this is what I do during these episodes now. I was thinking of what the, I mean, what a vast difference that is. I mean, that really is a completely different mindset. It's like one mindset set says the most obvious superficial thing, radar target, therefore object in the sky that's not ours, therefore aliens. And, and then here's the experiencer saying radar target sees something. <laughs> um, and that's something Okay, not ours, but we don't even know that it's really there. I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't. Right. It's, uh, it's, but I mean, how do you explain that to a Kevin Randall or a Stan Friedman without sounding batshit insane? Well, obviously, you can't. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, I'm saying it's so not in the realm of what he's even he can think about because. It, it comes from years of experience or years of pondering in a, in a different direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Under. So it, it's, it's not like, I mean, to us it's like, duh, but we're really kind of being schmucks about it in that way because it, it didn't, for me anyway, I mean, it, it takes a while to get there, you know? Yeah. It's not the most obvious superficial thing that you can think about this phenomenon. The, the most obvious is aliens, you know? Or if you're the skeptic, the most obvious is you pick something terrestrial and call it that. I just look at it like I do anytime somebody approaches me with an abduction experience that they remember, not from hypnosis, that involves um, you know, the insertion of implants or the operating theater or that kind of stuff. And I always try to say to them, I said, well, you know, there's, there's more in there than that. And I'm not saying that in order to get them to go have regression therapy done. I'm saying that because there's, there is a way, and, a, and I can't describe it, but there is more than that. Excuse me. That's like the top level of that experience. You know, that's not what really is going on as far as I'm concerned, uh, in my opinion. That's not what really is going on. That's, that's kind of like one, one level down in your perceptive uh, quality. You, you have to look, kind of try and look past that. Or say like, like Walken did in, in communion. That's not it. I'm not buying that. I know there's more underneath that because you're not going to show us what you really look like. That's kind of the same thing. He's talking about first level experience. That's not the deeper perception of that thing. Uh, in your subjective uh, perception of initially what happens, you may have the operating theater type of setting. That's not necessarily what's going on, um, and you have to try and look past that in some meaningful way to see what might be really going on. It's the same thing to me as, you know, the, the hardcore ETHers, you know, they're, they're only looking at the top level of this stuff. They're not really digging down into it because they really don't know where to go. Uh, I think many people are afraid to say, as much as people romanticize a mystery, so many people claim too much information. That's the problem. And, and, and until we're ready to sit down and go, okay, we've got a very serious mystery on our hands, and we don't know what it is, uh, but l- hmm, let me see. It could hold the fucking keys to the universe. 
and, and understanding everything. I, I don't think that I don't think that they're ready to take that step and say this is a mystery. This is something that we honestly don't understand, but we have to take steps to uh, to understand more about our reality, our nature of human perception, right down to the biological level of seeing with two meatballs stuck in your skull. That's 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 a whole other way to look at things, you know. Um, and, and just in the direction that I've uh, you know, in hearing, I mean, McKenna is the guy who set me off on this, hearing his lecture about UFOs. Whoever posted that to Culture of Contact is what got me thinking, because I thought, you know, I heard about that guy in UFO Magazine some years ago, and I poo-pooed all the way, because at the time, you know, I was only looking at, you know, maybe the top two levels of this whole thing. Uh, but when you start looking at what he's, and I, I encourage anybody who listens to this, Go to Psychic, Psychedelic Salon uh, podcast, do a search with Google. You'll find Terrence McKenna's lecture called UFOs. And listen to it, because what he says in that lecture is some of, and, and you're talking about a guy who wasn't even involved in UFOs. This is probably some of the most pertinent, relevant, interesting information that you're going to hear on UFOs ever. It's brilliantly presented. He's a fantastic speaker. And I think he did a long way in a very short amount of time with this subject to really present some serious possibilities and connections with altered states of consciousness, which are present in just about every alien abduction scenario you could talk about. So psychedelicsalon.com, I think, is what it is. But do a search and, and check it out. I mean, past that, I, I, you know, again, I don't think you're going to get you're, you're not going to turn ufology around from the ETH none too quickly. But I think as long as we keep saying, you know, like I said to Kevin tonight, what makes that extraterrestrial? How does that, you know, there's a, there's all this evidence. Well, okay, let's look at that, and none of it seems to really nail itself down to an extraterrestrial answer. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And by the way, I knew somebody's going to mention. Um, well, what about all the documentation squeezed out of the government about UFOs and extraterrestrials? You know, again, you're, you're actually going to take that and, and use that as that's, that's the evidence? You know, I mean, number one, the government may be wrong. Number two, it may be some kind of cover for a black project. You just don't know. That's not evidence. You know, and, and I hate to sound like one of those Bigfoot skeptics, but you got a body? Great. Okay, let's examine that body. Let's see what that's all about. Um, you know, until until the enigma itself is ready to drop this charade and tell us what it is, nobody knows. <laughs> Just say charade. The charade. Drop the charade. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. charade. <laughs> In my champagne-colored suit, I utter such words as charade. <laughs> you know, that, that's where I look at all this stuff because, it, you know, like I said, if anybody bothers to look and, and bothers to talk to other experiencers, you'll see that there are big-time connective ropes. They're no longer threads. They're fucking ropes <laughs> to, to this stuff. So I find it all very interesting. And, and by the way, this is not to say that the DMT experience or any of that kind of stuff means that you have to have DMT to have that experience. You you encounter this kind of thing through meditation. Other people do it through rhythmic drumming, and I don't even know what the hell that is, but 
Apparently, you do it for dancing. They dance for like five hours straight until they're, you know, practically ready to fall over and that kind of thing. There are other ways to get there, other ways to alter your perception and and to maybe experience these things. Um, but I, I haven't done any of that stuff. But I have questioned, questioned, questioned over and over and over. And like I, like I've admitted before, became borderline obsessed with this stuff at points in my life. And maybe that does something to put you into that um, that state. I right today on the message board we had uh, oh what was his name um, Rocket Sauce. Yes, Rocket Sauce. Thank you. Um, you know, said to me something about you know bringing up my idea of you know the, the more you give, the more attention you give, the more direct experience you seem to have, and and I've kind of. I don't know, turn that over on its ear because I'm thinking these days, is it so much that, is it, is it the enigma taking interest in us for the expressment of intent or is it us changing ourselves in a perceptual way to be able to see what's already there? Um, I'm kind of going that way with this, with this more you give, the more you get thing. Are we changing our own perceptions based on our intent to see what's already there, not calling anything in, per se. Well, I think it can be all of the above, you know. I mean, certainly something is doing something to us, you know, or if you want to say someone is doing something to us. I mean, mm-hmm. that's – and we're doing it ourselves. I mean – Two-way street, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it might be as simple as they get the ball rolling and you roll it, you know. Maybe, maybe, you know. I mean, who knows how all that works? I mean, do they do they throw out a hook and see if anyone bites it? I mean, I I don't know. You know, just with my own s- weird energy stuff. I mean, the, the the fact that I experienced that one type of energy three times, and only three times, and it's not something that I can control. Twice, it seemed to just sort of open up on its own and activate itself on its own, and then the third time, very clearly, something or someone did this to me. Mm-hmm. To create an effect, mm-hmm. you know, that ultimately ended up in a in a horrible 1950s style contact e message. You know? Right, right. Um, so, you know, you're not ever going to get me to say that that's all me. You know, right. even unconsciously doing that to myself because it just nothing about that felt that way. Right, you know? right, right. Well, I mean, go back to what uh, Dennis McKenna said on the show, which was, you know. The voice, you cannot anticipate it. It doesn't feel like you. It doesn't act like you. It doesn't say things you would say. Um, you know, I, I think that that draws big parallels to your experience with that. Well, it is interesting. You know, I have this unattached, you know, bodiless female voice that I hear during these what I call abduction-type experiences, even though some of them aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, Whitley Strieber talks about a woman, and various people talk about a woman and all this. But then you go to, yeah, the shamanic experience, and it's the female voice. I'm thinking, is it Isis, or is it Isis? The, the um, huh, well, the Greek version of all of this, mm-hmm. the sort of ancient Greek um, oracle voice right. is female. Mother Earth, you know, and, and all of that is obviously female. And they talk about female energies. The Hindus talk about this female energy and this female voice in some circumstances. So what is this? What the hell you know, is all that? At that right. point, is that aliens or interdimensional beings? I mean, what all is going on here? Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's a question. You know? It's a giant soup, 
Who is this woman? Yeah, yeah, and looking at uh, and looking at uh, myth, you know, uh, I, which I think you know, as Jacques Vallée looked at myth quite a bit in his work, and 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 draws these parallels to that. I mean, where did all that come from? Uh, the whole thing I brought up to you about the crop circle, uh, and uh, and Colin Andrews talking about um, uh, his research partner being pulled into the middle of this thing, like very hard. And then in the very next, you know, the very next uh, presentation, Graham Hancock's talking about fairy rings, and and being drugged into the middle of them. I mean, what? <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, there's all these interesting parallels to look at, and to me, just looking at the stars and going, "Who's out there?" is uh, a little tame in respect to some of this stuff. I mean, stuff may be a lot closer than we think. So, anyway. We should call it a wrap. That's a wrap. And once again, don't forget to come chat with us on the web at www.paratopia.net. We've got a forum there. And once again, don't forget to visit Kevin Randall's blog, A Different Perspective, at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Different Perspective is the name of his blog. Check him out.